Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, or whatever time of the day it is, whenever you're listening to this, this is the Film Film Project Podcast. This is Trish Lambert, not Dave Kale, who is um, who is once more, and I believe we should not be surprised, um, in a Wally sickness situation. Yes. This shall pass. Dave will come again. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. Dave is. Uh, uh, Dave has only begun the uh, long life he has of getting sick <laughs> with in- contagions that his child brings home to him. So, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> he implied. He implied in this message that he might be here, but I'm not holding my breath. So, <laughs> yes. and as you heard, we're here with the. This is Trish Lambert, and I'm here with Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. We also have uh, because we're going over scripts we have marie prosser and nick palazzo with us yay representatives from our script team so what are we doing today how far have we gotten guys well we got up (laughs) through episode eight all the way to eight so we're 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 going to so today we're going to uh 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 move serenely through episodes 9 through 12. We're just going to do the whole last five episodes. Uh, uh, so that's the entire plan. Um, I'm going to start off that plan by having relatively... Uh, uh, did I say 12? Hakan, 13. I meant 13. At 9 through 13. Um, we're going we're gonna, to... Uh, I'm going to start off that plan by uh, having a very efficient set of announcements today. Uh, only a couple things that I wanted to emphasize. Uh, one is our summer camps. So uh, it's just about summer camp season. Uh, uh, we are... Uh, Signum uh, has put together... We did our Hobbit camp last year. As you'll remember, we have four camps that we're doing this year. We've expanded our program. Uh, so we're doing free summer camps. These are targeted for like middle school age kids. So, a, you know, kids age, you know, anywhere from like nine to 15 range, basically. Um, and we have one camp on the Hobbit, one camp on the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, one camp on Harry Potter and the Sorcerer slash Philosopher's Stone, and one on A Wrinkle in Time. So uh, four awesome camps that are happening at different points uh, in the summer. They are all completely free to participate in. Um, and we're doing them uh, as a, a hybrid experience with local groups and with local uh, homeschool uh, with local homeschool groups, and of course with local public libraries. Um, so we would strongly encourage you to get in touch with your local library and tell them about this awesome program, which is totally free for them to participate in. Uh, and they can host a really awesome and interactive reading program for kids this summer, which we will help them with. And we've already done all the work for it and everything. And all they have to do is to provide a place for kids to come and talk about awesome books and do uh, really fun activities. So and now if you want to participate on your own, you know, like just in your own family, you can totally do that. Do that too. That's totally fine. But anyway, lots of information there on the signumuniversity.org slash academy page on our summer camps. I encourage you to go look at that. Go talk to your libraries. Email us if you have any questions. Camp at signumu.org will get through to us and we'll be able to answer any questions you have about our really fun summer camp program. The more the merrier. We want to get as many kids involved as possible. Our goal is just to like you know, uh, share our enthusiasm and excitement, uh, for these awesome works of literature with, uh, uh, you know, with the, like the next generation. So, um, that's it. That's what we're doing. And it's really fun. So, uh, Hobbit camp was so great last year and I'm really looking forward to, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing that program expand this year. Um, I, uh, the next, 
Uh, our next regional moot, which is coming up August 18th in Oakland, California, Bay Moot uh, for, nor- for Northern California there. Um, and I encourage you, you know, if you go to signumuniversity.org uh, to our events page there, you can see there's a, there's a page for Bay Moot, including the registration link and, importantly, the call for papers. Uh, so if you think about maybe wanting to do a, 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 a presentation at Bay Moot, you totally can do that. Uh, and uh, the link for that is there uh, on that page as well. Well, for film film related uh, planning purposes, we are coming now to the end. Of course, we've been coming to the end of season three here for some time. We are already in the post-production phase where we are now doing our script reviews. The next stage after this uh, is we're going to be doing uh, looking at the creative work that people have been doing uh, in various media and on various subjects uh, for season three. But one sort of larger ongoing process, as you probably know, we do a really fun uh, crowdsourcing of casting our uh, our uh, actors and actresses uh, for all of the different roles of season three. Of course, many of the major roles of season three have already been cast from season two uh, and are continuing onwards, but we do have a list of new folks uh, who need to be cast. Um, and so we're, we're, we're taking nominations for those currently. Um, if you go to our discussion board, uh, which is just uh, signumuniversity.org slash forums, uh, no, forums.signumuniversity.org, sorry, uh, and uh, and you go to the film film one and season three and casting, you'll see the, uh, you can follow the thread there to our nominations uh, 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 th- uh, forum, where you can nominate different people you need to, so Marie, can you explain again, what do people need to do in order to nominate somebody? They need to have the name and the a photo of the actor and a link to the IMDb page, preferably also a an age and a height and mm-hmm. a brief description of why they think this actor would be appropriate for that role. Yeah, yeah. So something persuasive. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, it's funny how much, how, how important height has been in our discussions. I mean, cause it's a big day. Tolkien makes a big deal of people's heights, you know? And so there are some people who just would be, I mean, I know that, you know, there certainly have been some, uh, productions that have succeeded despite highly unlikely, uh, height casting. Uh, I, I think in particular of, uh, what's the name? Of, I'm forgetting his name now already. The guy who was cast as Henry the eighth in the Tudors. Uh, oh yeah, I don't remember his name. Yeah, oh, I can see his him in my mind's eye, but yeah. Well, anyway, did he's, you tell me wasn't he too short? He was tiny. Yeah, Henry VIII yeah. was enormous. Like Big, not only yeah. when he got fat later in his life, but I mean he was he was he towered over everybody. He was, um, I mean, he was over six feet tall, which was very unusual for the you know kind of nutrition they had in the 16th century. Um, and he was broad and burly, and and they cast this yeah, Jonathan Rhys Myers. That's it. Thanks, Zach. There um, you go. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, and he's like shorter than everybody. I mean, he's like looking up at his courtiers. He's looking up at every other monarch that he uh, that he meets with. He's looking up at his wives. I mean, he's just tiny. I mean, he carried it off. He's a good actor, you know, but, uh, but again, if you knew anything about, you know, about Henry VIII, it was kind of like, 
I don't know. There were many points where I found myself almost giggling at inappropriate moments when, you know, Henry VIII is staring up at somebody. But anyway, uh, so yeah, we're trying to avoid situations like that, essentially. Uh, and it's, 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 uh, it's, it's challenging. We had more leeway when we were doing the Valar, frankly. Uh, uh, w- once we got into elves, that got a little more challenging. But like, for instance, we didn't want like a, to cast a five-foot Galadriel, for instance. Like, you know, that was just – no matter how good the actress was, we just – we could not have a five-foot-nothing right, right. Galadriel. That wouldn't – that just wouldn't fly. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Marvel somehow managed to make it look like um, – what's his face? Tony, um, Tony Stark is the same height or taller than Pepper Potts. Um, <laughs> right. So, I'll be okay. Right. Well, that's because the actor is wearing platform heels. <laughs> right. Or, or she's barefoot. Or she's barefoot, right. In the adventure, she's barefoot for the one scene. So, yeah, uh, they they make it work, but it, yeah. it's a challenge. Yeah. And I've met her. She's not really that tall. <laughs> but I think the actor and the actress are the same height. So, if you put her in three-inch heels, you have a problem. Right, right. Anyway, anyway, so sorry, this is a digression to explain why we care about their heights because it's, uh, you know, it's important. Anyway, okay. All right. So that's our, that's our, that's those are announcements, uh, what we are looking forward to. Without further ado, let us plunge into our outline. So we had done episode eight in which, wait, what happened in episode eight? That was the burning of the ships, wasn't it? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we burned the ships. I know we burned yeah. the ships. Okay, so... I think we ended with the burning of the ships. Yeah. The last time we discussed the Doom of Mandos and the burning of the ships. Doom yes. of Mandos and the burning of the ships. Okay, right. That's what I thought. Okay. So we ended with that and we got Amrod uh, safely killed off and we uh, uh, and uh, Amros uh, survived. Um uh, by the way, general comment on Amros's character in episode, you know, and like for the for the for the end of the season, uh, you know, we'll come back and talk about him at various other points, probably. But uh, uh, but I like Grumpy Amrod or Amros rather. I, I think that that you know you know it's that's 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 good. I'm I, I almost would like want to see him rebel more, but uh, uh, and in fact, I'm. Uh, I'm almost, I have to, it's too late now because I already conceded, but, um, you know, in retrospect, I'm thinking, you know, I should have, I should have, uh, I should have lobbied harder, not harder for his death, but I should have driven a harder bargain. I think, I think I should have demanded that my condition of letting, of like agreeing to let Amros live, uh, would be to have him rebel against the fan the other fan entirely. Uh, but but it's okay. At we least, do have the opportunity to go in that direction in season four, if that's something you'd like to see. Well, I, you know, I'm just, I'm having a hard because, time seeing how he, like, and, and, and I, I like the trajectory that you're taking him. Like, it makes sense, right? It makes sense that he's going to be, um, he's going to, he, he's going to be really down on everything that the fan he's going to be anti-Fanor, right? He's going to be anti, he's, he's, he's. Uh, stuck with the oath uh, himself. He's already sworn it, so he's stuck with the oath, but he hates it, and he doesn't just hate it, um, but sees through it, right? Knows it's pointless, uh, has already seen how destructive it is. Nobody needs to tell him, you know, that... uh, you know, that the Oath of Feanor is, has bad consequences and stuff. He's already seen them and, and has, has felt the bitterness of that as much as he's gonna. So, um, 
so to see him like then go from be like, well, okay, let's carry on fulfilling the oath. Like, I would think that he would have to come to that con- the same conclusion that Ma- that uh, Maglor is going to finally come to after the War of Wrath. You know, the whole less harm shall we do in the breaking um, uh, conclusion. I would think that Amros would come to a great deal sooner than any of the rest of his brothers. Now, I I do think that the rescue of Mithros will figure into his character quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I think that he might have like a glimmer of hope that, okay, maybe this isn't impossible. Right. And then we're going to get, th- then we're going to get, you know, the near knife and, you know, it's all downhill from there. Like right. he, he realizes, no, we're never going to like, this is never going to happen. Okay. So basically the idea is that he, um, he is hoping that, Mythros, like basically, he's willing to go along and stay with the family because Mythros is in charge. And like now that the Feanorians are under new management, he's hoping that it's gonna, it's where things are gonna move into a genuinely different direction, right? Yes, we needed to give him something to hang his hat on, some glimmer of hope, some right thing to be rooting for. So we've chose Mythros, which will yeah. Yeah. allow for some dynamic changes in his character arc yeah. as things change with. And that's now, a, yeah. when and, Mithros fails in, at the near knife, yeah. like, and the balance of power is going to swing back towards the sea bros. You know, yes. like things are going to, things are like it's going to be obvious to him that Mythos is is not going to fix this. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, and and it, that works very organically. The whole you know kind of hanging his head on Mythros thing because of how Mythros stood aside at the burning, right? So Mythros is like literally the only one of his brothers that he would be able to kind of stick to, you know, that he would not want to just distance himself from. Uh, so yeah, right. and we had to give him some level of yeah. trust. And since Mythros is currently captive, yeah, it puts that into a starker perspective than it would. Have we had him focus on something else. Right. And that makes a lot of sense. And then you add in the fact that when Mithros is rescued, he's going to be changed. Right. But also he's <laughs> going to, uh, you know, relinquish his claim to the kingship of the Noldor to Fingolfin. And that act, that very unfeanorian act of humility and gratitude on, uh, uh, you know, and uh, remorse on uh, Mithros's part, I would think would not only be something which would be heavily advocated by Emros, you know, and, uh, but also, you know, a, again, a, a clear sign to, to Emros that, you know, the Fanorians are under new management now, right? We're not just continuing in the same direction that Fanor was taking us in. So that works. I like that. I like that. Anyway, but sorry. This is, that's, that wasn't exactly a digression. Just kind of a general, because I know there's only like kind of Amros bits here and there in a bunch of these different episodes. Uh, but just while it was on my head and we were mentioning the burning of the ships, I wanted to just mention that because I thought that was uh, something that in general I really liked over the course of, uh, uh, over the course of the end of the season here in your outlines. All right. Um... So episode nine, what are some issues from episode? So let's just quick recap, right? So we've got, uh, Mablong trying to prepare the green elves for battle, uh, the dwarves failing to arrive. And now, uh, and, and the 
green elves starting to die. Uh, now, remind me, how far... When do we stop? The death of Denethor happens here? No. Yes, Denethor dies. Denethor dies in episode battle. 9. But then the battle yes. is still going in episode 10? Or do we... we no. No, we, we finish In it episode here. 10, we, we go back it. to the dwarves. Ah, right, dwarves. right, right. Okay, so like, okay. Like part right. 2 of the battle. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and I just, I, I just love that. But anyway, sorry. I, I, the, the way that you guys handled the green elf, uh, uh, dwarf conflict thing after the battle I, is just brilliant. I absolutely love it. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that in episode ten. Um, okay, great. So, so we get the death of Denethor uh, and all that stuff here. That's excellent. Um, tell me, uh, um, tell me more about stuff you guys wanted to, you know, things you know, moments you were kind of uncertain about or interested to discuss more from, uh, from this episode. So one of the things that was very important to me was to not make it look like Mablung and Thingol are completely oblivious to what the situation is. Right. Um, there's no way, there is no way that you put, the green elves toe to toe with the orcs. Right. There just isn't. Um, right. They already know that that's that is a doomed proposition. Right. So we had to find a way to set it up so that they it, that was never their intention. It was never their intention to um, to put the green elves in you know in contact in direct contact with the orcs. Right. Um, but that's just the way the battle happened because there was, um, there it, because not everything was coordinated perfectly. Right. Which you have to, which you have to be able to do when you're dealing with, you know, several different armies coming from several different directions. Um, yeah. And you you have no almost no frame of reference. Right. We almost had to assume that the stars are moving in in this because if they aren't there is there is no way that they can coordinate with the dwarves when they're supposed to arrive any place yes bringing us right smack back against the astronomical difficulties of the first age of middle earth uh yeah yeah i mean how can you coordinate the the telling of i mean how can anyone measure time in middle earth um yeah. yeah. Well, they they do have um, <laughs> hourglasses. I mean, right. they're not hours, but like you know, right. you turn over the sand and it falls like <laughs> periods you know. of time glasses. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yes. yes. Um, but yeah, that's about the only non-connected to the Earth form of time telling that we could well come and, up with. Yeah, because see, here's an interesting question, right? I mean, here's like, a, a, this is another one of those fun moments, right? Where you kind of realize something that you always sort of took for granted. Dwarves, if you're subterranean, you're not going to have either, not only are you not going to have a, a, a measure of like a, a, a regular day-night thing, right? You're you would have a culture which has no objective day or night, no seasons, and no years. Right? 
even after this, yeah. Even after this, yeah. yeah. I mean, so like, so well, I'm thinking the dwarves, that, I, yeah. The dwarves, I can believe, have some sort of mechanical clocks. Even right. at this point, they would have yeah, like crude mechanical clocks in some way. Even even something like hourglasses. Like water, I mean, I would think clocks. that the, you know they would have glass, right? I mean, they would have discovered about the you know the yeah. melting of sand and things. I mean, that seems like a perfectly dwarvish thing for them to discover. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, I, I I agree. They would have for exactly purposes like this. You know, they would have, um, but there's no external standard. Right. I mean, I'm just trying to right. imagine. It seems like the it seems like the Dorvis culture would have borrowed astronomical references to time from other cultures they've come in contact with, rather than yes. initially develop it themselves. Because yes. clearly, they eventually do have that. Which but... we we may have just solved the the issue of how the dwarves relate. Yes, um, exactly. So if we can we can call that like it's not in the outline at all because we couldn't really come up with a concrete reason that doesn't look dumb right um but if they have no from reference when it comes to the stars and in the next episode if we have them mentioning you know is is this when we were supposed to be there or is <laughs> right. like you know if we and they have, should be there, grumbling there be about some it. confusion right I yeah mean, they yeah should be, exactly you know for to them this is a like it would be well okay hang on Let, let's Back up a step first, but I mean, let me just say I agree. Like I, that, that totally, um, kind of as a like the Wear Guild thing, right? We're talking about just like cultural differences. Um, so it's not about it's it's really their fault, and they're trying to blame the elves. Like it's just as much the elves' fault that they didn't realize. I mean, that it's this is a question of both of them taking for granted stuff, which is sort of the way their culture looks at things and not understanding the differences. So, okay. But let's back up a second. So you're the dwarves. You live almost entirely underground. It's true that there are some dwarves that come above ground, but what's happening above ground, especially now, right? I mean, like, day and night can't help but obtrude themselves upon your notice when you come above ground, right? Like, they're gonna, they they would notice that sometimes the sun was up and sometimes it wasn't. Um, But, now, without the sun and moon even, right, when it's just the stars up, even if the stars are moving, are the dwarves going to care? Are they going to even notice? I, I, why would they, right? They're not going to I mean, they're not going to be spend enough time above ground to pay attention to that kind of thing. And they're not going to be especially interested in it anyway, right? So, yeah. uh, so, for, so you're the first, the early first age dwarves you are living in a completely timeless, completely seasonless, uh, well, not timeless, obviously, but uh, in a dayless and monthless and seasonless and yearless life. How do you live? How does that affect your culture? How does your culture grow a up as a result of that? markless environment. In a what? It's a markless environment. Yeah. There's yeah, no markers. So now, they still have yeah, to that... sleep. I was going to say, they are mortal, so they do have lifespans. And they have lifespans and they sleep, matter. right? And they so, sleep. But I, I, I've noticed that for myself, when I lived in a tropical place that didn't have seasons, it did feel very timeless because the sun came up and went down at the same time every day, all year round. Right. So it never got later. It never got colder. It never The leaves right. never fell off the trees. Right. There was nothing that was signaling to me with my own experience that 
time has gone by. So right. September was the same thing as December. Right, right. Uh, so that is, a, I would think, uh, the similar thing with living underground. It becomes timeless in that everything is always the same for conditions. There is no season to talk about. Right. So I would think that basically that, you know, so in as much as dwarves have circadian rhythms, right, they, they wouldn't be oriented to any kind of objective day or night. So in a given, so different dwarves, they all have to sleep, but they don't all necessarily have to sleep the same amount exactly. And there's no reason to think they would all sleep at the same time, right? Because um, I would think that the dwarf culture, rather than being sort of communal, right, rather than a dwarf settlement, say, you know, just imagining like a little city of dwarves underground, it's hard for me to imagine that the dwarves would be like, okay, let's all get together and agree that now is sleep time. We'll ring a bell or something, and then everybody goes to bed, and then we'll have everybody wake up. That's not how they'd operate. They're too individualistic, right? They would each be off doing their own thing, and, like, when a particular craftsman needed rest, he'd go and sleep, and then he'd get back up again, and he'd go back to work, right? So, um, I it, would... It depends on how much organiz- like how much organization there is, because right. what I was thinking is that if, if they have any kind of, like... Um, not factory work per se, but it, it, but anything where they need like yeah. fifty guys working on anything right. for any length right. of time, yeah. they would work in shifts, and they would think about rest in shifts. In shifts, yes, yes, yeah. No, that's clear. So, if you have like a big excavation project or something, as you say, right, some some big multi dwarf effort would be coordinated in that way. But I would have to think that by and large, those things would be considered an exception, right? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if you have a military situation as well with an army, you need right. to take turns uh, being awake and on watch. So right. the right. shift concept works either for the military point of view or from the construction point of view. So they would have some mechanism to measure time. And what would be the standard? I mean, you, you, the, we were talking the length about- of time a dwarf could work without rest. Yeah, right. that would have to be it, so, right? So if you figure it would be double the length of an average human day now, so you figure a dwarven shift is probably about 16 hours. Right, right. And so they rest, they eat, they come back, they work. So maybe they do like 16 hours on, 16 hours off. Yeah, probably 16 and 12 maybe, something like that. Because remember, like, what's downtime? What does a dwarf do for fun? Right? How does a dwarf recreate? That's true. (laughs) Carving, right? I mean, they're going to do stuff. Go back and forth like that. You're going to run. You run into a few organizational um, issues. Plus, I mean, aren't there are girl dwarfs, right? So we got the relationship angle in there. So they got to have a couple hours. (laughs) So Trish has come up with something for them to do when they're not working and sleeping. (laughs) Yay! It's date night for the dwarves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's it, right. It's like, listen, I got to go home. My wife's really on my case. <laughs> I, I haven't seen her in ages. Well, because she's going to be off doing her thing, right? You know, so like it's... I, <laughs> that's when, true, actually. If, if I dwarves, were married girls are also off working in the mines too yeah, right so they got their own shift that they're working yeah, yeah exactly if, they're not- if i were a married dwarf i would tell absolutely nobody 
<laughs> that you were married? <laughs> yeah, there's not that many of them. Like somebody's going to find a way for me to have an unhappy accident. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, besides just the, the natural, so, yeah, exactly, uh, the natural secretiveness assumes, of the dwarves. I mean, one assumes there are time for conjugal visits because we do see sons of dwarves <laughs> right, no, sprinkled in right, the stories. No, date night does happen, that's clear, but uh, but see, that would be a thing, like, I would assume... Not, probably not very often, that could be not very often, maybe on dwarf festival days, so, <laughs> you know, you're right, if we could actually have it be like 16 hours and 12 hours, you know. But but see, yeah, I mean, so I would think so if they're married, right? So if you've got if you've got married dwarves, they don't necessarily have to spend all their time together. I mean, I don't imagine dwarf couples being all like, you know, let's, you know, hang out together and. I mean, I don't know, like. Let's Netflix and chill. Yeah, exactly. I don't see dwarf couples doing Netflix and chill. I really don't. Uh, I mean, maybe they would. I don't know, but um, but I would. Uh, you know, but all you'd have to do is just like so. Basically, if you were, if like dwarves who are either like married and living and working working together with a spouse, or similarly, dwarves who are you know uh, working with other dwarves on a project or something like that would coordinate their, uh, you know, circadian rhythms basically, right? Like they would, they would agree to sleep at the same time. So I agree that they would create a, some kind of apparatus, possibly something as simple as a large hourglass or something, um, to, or a water clock. Or a water clock yeah. Uh, yeah. That would be that would take as the basic unit of time because why would they subdivide like the concept of an hour right why would they do that they wouldn't care about hours they would um, no they would yeah they have well, like what you, the easiest way is you have a candle that burns down and when it reaches the end that's the time is up so you just make all your candles the same size and then everyone knows the amount of time it takes a candle to burn down is right you know, but if you make fat like candles they don't have to burn down that though. Do they make candles? I guess they'd make candles. They have to have something lighting underground. Yeah. They probably make them out of earwax. Earwax. <laughs> okay, now. <laughs> I think they would make... Would they burn things? You know, they could actually burn actual crude oil. They could make... Kerosene lamps. <laughs> kerosene lamps, exactly. They could they could make lamps. Um, they could make... Um, but see, that's the other thing I'm thinking, again, especially for the early dwarves, they're not going to need all that much light, are they? Uh, I mean... They're underground. Of course they need light. Well, no. Now, like, you know, one of the things... You know, Lotro actually sort of solved yeah. this with those mirrors. You know, how you'd have... Yeah, it, uh, like holes to the to the outer world where there's you know the light was shining through, and then they would use these series of mirrors to right. to ba- bounce the light kind right. of, of thing. And then, the, and then the, there are also the shimmering uh, gem, the shimmering rocks, which may be more. You know, yeah, that might be more. Well, likely. I was thinking more along those later lines because, of course, even even mirror systems uh, are, are post sunlight, right? So uh, pre sunlight, we wouldn't even have that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, but but yeah, I'm thinking in terms of like you know, luminescence, like, you know, uh, 
bioluminescence yeah. or something would bioluminescence Lower. be enough to because I, I i know they need light but they don't need much light i mean their eyes would be very good in the dark right so like for instance would would a would a smith need more than the light of the forge i don't know that they would mm. you know I mean, we do, but obviously dwarves don't need to light up. Uh, you know, Gimli speaks of the lamps in Khazad-dûm, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the place was lit up like a you know a modern human thing would be underground. Plus, that could have been a later technology from what the time right, we're talking exactly. about. Right, exactly. It could be, and and I kind of. Uh, uh, I kind of get the impression from Gimli that it was like the splendor of the lamps rather than uh, – and also – The light they were giving. <laughs> right, exactly. The, it's... Light. <laughs> yeah. the, the so, only Dorvish settlement we're going to see this season is the small forge of uh, Gemmelbrog, which right. uh, has been destroyed already. Right. So as you pointed out, yes, a forge could be lit by forge fire and that maybe is all they need. They, might have some additional lamps or candles or something, but right. it's not necessary. Like you don't want to go that way. But yeah, see, this is why I'm kind of thinking that like luminescent fungus would probably be enough light for dwarves whose eyes are very keen in the dark. Um, and there's some beautiful caves that have glow worms in them and stuff. Yeah, especially in New Zealand. I don't yeah. know if you've seen. Yeah, no, uh, I, 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 I haven't. But, but exactly. I mean, that's the kind of. Th- that, this is why I'm, I'm kind of balking at candles. That, that's what I'm getting around mm. to, is that I'm not sure that they need fire, for light. Um, I, I'm mm. that is, I'm not sure they need that quantity of light. That might be too bright for them. Um, I mean, in fact, we could even have them. I would think that a glowing forge would be like the dwarvish standard for something super bright. Like that's that's like the upper end of their scale of bright light, essentially. Okay. So the dwarves are late because they they mix up this newfangled, new elvish pine right standard. Okay. Hang on a second. Now I, I appreciate you're trying to push us back along, uh, Nick, <laughs> but that's reckless. Uh, one more step before we get there. Okay, so we've established that the dwarves don't. Okay, so they don't have an hour-based culture, right? They just like they think in terms of work periods and rest periods, right? Um, so if they're going to count time, you know, if if a dwarf were to say something like, "Okay, I'll meet you a week from next Tuesday," right? How they would do that would be like they would count the number of work periods between now and then. Right. Right. So many sleeps until... <laughs> so many sleeps until that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... They probably also have a concept of, like, a pay period or something, too. <laughs> pay period. <laughs> I don't think we want to introduce currency at this I don't think we want to do economy, but yeah. Like, if you have a group of dwarves working on a particular project, they they must get some kind of renumeration for that in, or, or like some amount of food or whatever it is that Clearly they do. Clearly there's compensation involved and dwarves are going to have the most advanced economy of anybody. But right. Definitely. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we They're not getting the a bi-league paycheck though. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. But one can imagine that they are able to, that when they divide longer periods of time, they do so in that way, like how long it takes 
you know, how long it takes a person to do X, you know, to achieve X amount of value. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So they, uh, dwarves obviously have contracts, right? I mean, Bilbo's contract shows that that's how they think, right? Um, so not, that all makes sense. Um, my big, my big question though, as far as time is concerned, what would the cultural relationship to time be? So one temptation, since there is so little to mark the passing of time, um, there, there is a difference between working and sleeping, but that's literally the only difference, the only way to tell one stretch of time from another if you're a dwarf. Um, so the thing that they wouldn't have any sense of is like, it's going to take three weeks to do this. Like it will take a bunch of works, but you know, but you know, a, a bunch of work periods, but who cares? Like We live a long time. Like what else do we have to do? Um, in some cultures where there is not very precise marking of time, you know, you will have a, a, a you know, like the, the, no concept of like the idea of punctuality, right? Where like things just kind of happen when they happen and, uh, you know, you kind of wait for the, uh, stirring to do something. But the idea of like being on time or being late for something is, you know, well, generally in those cultures, what happens is everyone gathers and waits for the important person to arrive. And when the important person arrives, the activity begins. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like this webinar, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We can relate to this. Uh, I get my, yeah. So I, obviously here's the question I'm getting around to. The question I'm getting around to is um, how puzzled are the dwarves going to be? Is, is the problem that I'm, they they are cool with the punctuality thing? They just like mis like the the the, the calculations are wrong on both sides, um, or is, I don't think they tried that hard to figure it out. Okay, I think they had to figure out figure it out on some level, and so they like had some. They they started marching. They had somebody kind of watching the stars, trying to figure out what the elves were talking about, and they got a rough idea. Right. All right. Nobody was expecting the orcs to immediately launch themselves at the um, at the elves. Yeah. Yeah. This is it, it's interesting because this proposal, you know, this proposal of hey, let's gray elves, green elves, and dwarves all come together from different geographic locations and converge in one spot at one time in order to engage a fourth group of people who are also moving independently and doing what they want to do, right? Let's, let's coordinate that and make that... I mean, goodness knows that kind of strategic situation is hard enough, you know, under even, like, modern communication <laughs> situations, right? Um, right. Uh, and so what we're looking at is well, really many the first many attempt... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. If medieval armies certainly wouldn't do it that way. What they would do is they would gather together first. Right. That's what you do. You gather together first, then you split off to do whatever maneuvering that you're going to do, and then a trumpet sounds or there's some kind of audio, audible signal 
Right. That now tells you, you could when coordinate if you had. I mean, you know, you would use you know scouts and and errand riders and things yeah. to coordinate between armies. So it would be possible to do this kind of thing. But I agree. I mean, this is a this is a this is a big undertaking, which. Is kind of also leading me. Well, no, never mind. I'll save that segue. We still have to. We still have to do the dwarves. Could we make it as simple as this? Now, Norn might kind of guess this or worry about this, but um, how do the elves measure time by the stars? Presumably, yeah. If the stars, so they're, they're the stars measuring move, it. Yeah, yeah. Assuming they move, they could already be measuring time in twenty-four hour cycles. Right. Right. Um, yes. So the elves are measuring actual days and what they don't realize is that the dwarvish days are longer, right? They don't realize yes. like, that it doesn't even occur to them. Like they don't even think about the fact that the dwarves are obviously not counting days, uh, by the stars. So this is a conversion factor error. Conversion factor error, exactly. The dwarves are operating on like a, I don't know what, maybe a 30-hour day, something like that? 28 hours, we were suggesting, right? 16 on, 12 off? Well, because then you have then you have um, 20 hours and 10 hours and it the math works out. Yeah. Yeah, so so you're, the, the, the they so you know maybe that's why you know that's ultimately where well, the error comes in. So well, I may have I'm, this. You guys may have already handled this, but I'm like, how how do we show this in the show? I mean, do we have right. a narrator going? We don't. But the elves had, no. did, had little did the elves know. Dun, dun. No, Azagal <laughs> and and uh, what's his face, the king of Dalgrog, Lauren, Lauren, Lauren. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, I'm yeah. Trying so to figure out how to get that into. Story. Yeah, we don't necessarily even need to. I, the, the, sort of the the point of what we're going to convey in the show is both sides think they're totally right. I mean, you know, but I think if we can if we can show some reason at some point, I mean, it may come out at some point to explain why this problem was. But we don't worry about it, especially at the beginning. At the beginning, it just looks like the dwarves. Uh, okay. You know, we're kind of from the elves' viewpoint at first. With the elves being like, where are the stupid dwarves? The dwarves are late. I always knew they were untrustworthy. Those tree killers can't be trusted. And then, um, and then you know, so so they're like, and then they show up and they're like, we're here, right on time. Like, what are you all so yeah, bothered about? Yeah, we're not that. We're early. Yeah, we're early. Why are you ticking us? You said four days. We're here in two and a half. You're three and a half. What's the <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. The problem yeah. is the elves won't say day. That's that's Bro. the issue. Yeah. But but yes, there's a translation issue on top of. It would say something the... like turning of the stars or something like that. Right, right. Well, that well, the Elvish word for day could it could literally mean a 24 hour cycle rather than a time when the sun's up. Right, that's uh, yeah. possible. But I they're not that's speaking. What Ray means, yeah. Yeah. So so uh, we could actually introduce the issue, or like when they're talking with Norn. Basically, um, and they could even Norn could not realize. I mean, how's Norn even gonna know that there's a difference in well, the amount of time? Well, that's true. Yeah, because I Norn, mean, like, Norn has been living with the elves, so he should pick up on different cycles and different patterns. But it's easy to make that mistake. I mean, it's a it's a new culture to him. He might not have realized yet. And does he? And he even... probably didn't bring his clock with him. Exactly, he doesn't have a water clock with it. Like the dwarves' clocks can be huge, right? So, so it you know. 
even his own personal sleep cycles will have been thrown off by living among the, the elves, right? So mm-hmm. he will have, and this is a thing that would happen almost unconsciously if you're out traveling in a different place and living among different people, you know, he would have accommodated his sleep schedule to their daily routine. Right, um, right. So, so even he, he might, might be, be actually unaware of it. Not there yet, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we could set this up by having, when they make the original, you know, when we're having like Thingol and, uh, 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 Norn talk about the arrangement, like we will meet you in, you know, for whatever the noun we use is right. The thing which would essentially be days, right. Or five days or however many, uh, and we can introduce a translation issue there, right? The word that the elves use for day could be one that's unknown to Norn, and he asks for them to explain what that means, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then he's like, oh, yes, like, so, like, when you're asleep and awake, yeah, sure, okay, right, yeah, we do the same thing, so fine, I will tell them to be here in four of those, or five of those, or however many well, it is, right? The, the way it's structured now, we are introducing this confusion after the fact. Right. So... We're, we're we're having Thingol confronting Norn about the fact that there are no dwarves here. Um, right. And, Rather than showing the setup. Right. Yeah. Right. So now that can be done. Um, you, you know, we can, we can, I think that there is a way that that can be written in the dialogue um, mm-hmm. without it clunky, but we'll just have to kind of call that out uh, in the outline. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, like, I don't even know, like, I don't, yeah, we can bring it up. I don't think this has to be fully explained, right? No, I mean, no, I think no. It's, it, I think that it's going to make more sense once we see the dwarves in the next episode and they're complaining about having to try to figure out what the elves mean. Right. Um, right. Uh, and yeah. then they come across this, this piddling army of orcs. <laughs> yes, it, it, I love that. Like, is this is I what they're that. complaining about? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Oh, yeah, by the way, I, one thing that we could do to introduce the, the sort of the difference is um, one of the, whether it's Norn or somebody else who's talking to the other dwarves can talk about the movements of the stars, and we can have one of the other dwarves look up at the stars and say, they move. You know, like, like they don't even know, right? Uh, well, I, th- I think they know that they move. What they may not be aware of is that it's the same ones over and over again. Maybe. Well, one or the other. Because if you travel outside for any length of time, you, you, like, you probably notice that. But but they haven't. I mean, the majority of the dwarves who are up there have never been above ground before. The only That's dwarves who have ever been above ground are, like, the ones who are up on lumber duty, Right. And like Azakal's yeah. never been on lumber duty, so it's, it seems to me very likely Azakal has never seen the stars in his life before. Why should he? No, he he met with Ingol once before, and that okay. was oh, at he Sarnford. Did, right. He did so. meet once before. He okay. definitely is trapped. But even so, dwarves aren't the type that would like ponder the skies. They're or look up, yeah. frankly. You know, <laughs> they're like contemplating the the earth, right? So right. they wouldn't even. I don't even think they they may see the stars, but they wouldn't look at them long enough to even notice to notice that they had changed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree that they have not fully understood what's going on with the stars at this point in their culture. Right. Agreed. Right. <laughs> Hakan says we could we could just have them say what's meeting three hundred and fifty thousand heartbeats, uh, but their hearts beat at different speeds, which they don't realize. So, yeah, no, but oh, exactly. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> but then, then of course, we get the comical scenes of Doris being like, "Wait, I lost count. Were we at twenty five thousand eight hundred and seventy six? Where were? Yeah. Uh, but see, yeah, even that, the idea of uh, of of counting. See, that's it's just way too small a unit of time. Only only somebody with a real short lifespan would count things in heartbeats, right? Although I, I totally believe that the elves can subconsciously count their heartbeats, but the dwarves <laughs> probably can't. Probably can't. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, anyway. it's, it's, it's really fascinating to think about kind of units of time, because I would think that the like, dwarves might have units of time, longer units of time, but I'm thinking, like, what would be the basis of their longer units of time? And I'm thinking it would be things like the amount of time it takes to forge an axe, say, you know, like to forge a good axe head, you know, which takes like, you know, three or four work sessions to, uh, to, to, to get it to where you want it. So, you know, eventually like that unit of four days, you know, becomes a, becomes a, like a, a, a unit that is referred to, you know, in that way. I'm just, I'm just trying to think it's, it's fun to just kind of world build here and think about, to kind of put yourself into this, uh, into this viewpoint, and think how would they, even among themselves, talk about it? Especially since, as they go on to become a more mercantile culture, if you're a mercantile culture, you do need to coordinate, right? I mean, you need to, you need to be able to, because you're going to be encountering other cultures. You're going to be be able to go there and back and to know when to expect people and to say how long your journey is going to take in order to calculate how much food you need to bring with you and all that kind of thing. So um, they would definitely develop perhaps also traveling based units of longer units of time. Um, But uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Hakan, we had decided that they don't use hourglasses because why would they count hours? They would have some larger clock that was um that would count you know, that would that would uh, uh could measure the amount of time that they're because the one thing a dwarf would need is a reminder of when they should stop working, right? Because it's like they And that actually could be a dwarf hour, right? That- yeah. A single, yeah. like you know, a work a work cycle would be an hour to a dwarf. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the unit. That's 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 their basic unit. I don't think it would be subdivided. Um, why why subdivided? Like what what is the what is the motivation for that? Um, yeah yeah yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, yeah. So. Um, uh, Yeah. Um, Zach's asking if they're already trading with, like, the Longbeards and the other dwarf families at this point. I'm going to... I don't know. Possible, I suppose. If if anything, they probably have a very distant contact. Yeah. Like, the roads haven't been built, right, that go down to... Yeah, I would think that they wouldn't do much overland travel yet. Uh, That's something that might open up later more but okay sorry anyway let me move on to my next issue then my next issue is with the uh tactical plan for the battle yeah okay mm-hmm. so i'm closing my eyes because i need a map um 
Yeah, I made one, but it's terrible. So that's, that's fine. Um, <laughs> here's my here's my here's my problem. If you've got the orc army in the middle, and mm-hmm. the gray elves on one side and the green elves on the other side, right? Um, so the t- intention was to envelop the orcs in kind of a uh, a V shape. All right, with the gray elves on the one side and the dwarves on the other, uh-huh. and to force them into kind of the morass where the the green elves are supposed to be posted to pick the orcs off as they get forced in there. Okay. Um, now, the way that we had set it up, the gray elves were initially fully under the impression that the ants were still there. Uh-huh. Um, they didn't know that they that they had gone, so they were assuming that the Green Elves are going to have this backup, which they don't have. So Mablong realizes this, and he then that's when he comes up with Plan B to set up a, a fallback position for the Green Elves, so they don't get overrun. Okay. Spoiler alert: It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Right. Right. Because basically, the here's the number one. So I I see that the. I guess my main question is why aren't the green elves behind the gray elves line? Um, mostly because it's um, if they if they aren't well mostly it's it's mostly a, a coordination issue. They, they they're not planning to meet up and do this. And also remember, this is the first time that this has ever been done. They're not yeah. going to have the green right. elves come up behind them like like a squad of archers or something. Well, but see, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. I mean, I get that their their own military tactics aren't going to be, you know, practiced and highly developed. But the number one reality of bringing the green elves into battle. I mean, Mablung, we know, is totally up on this, right? You know, uh, if if there's one truth to which Mablung holds at this point, it is that uh, it is that the Green Elves should not be receiving the charge of the Orcs, right? That they cannot stand against the Orcs toe to toe. Um, so, even if you're not, you know, kind of deploying them in some kind of sophisticated way. Um, uh, you know, as a line of archers behind, you know, a uh, phalanx of foot or something like that. Um, nevertheless, the basic concept, we want to keep the green elves be- or the, the gray elves between the orcs and the green elves. That would seem to be like basic battle concept number one from Mablung's point of view, you'd think, right? Um, so, so there has to be a reason he can't do that, because yes. obviously if they did that, then the Green Elves would have been safe the whole time. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm getting at, is we need to make sure that we convey. And, you know, goodness knows, it's although it's very sensible to say, here's our complex battle plan, and, oh goodness, our complex battle plan doesn't come off anything like we planned and gets hosed. That's fine, but that's a that's a kind of thing that's sort of famously difficult to convey in an interesting and compelling fashion on screen. A lot of people who have tried that have failed. Um, well, initially the plan the plan was Mablong went into this with the plan that the Ents were going to be like going to be the shield for the Green Elves. Then it turns out the Ents aren't there. 
So he's going he's going to use the morass to keep uh, keep the orcs from approaching as long as he can, and he's going to uh, to continuously fall back. He doesn't know that it's going to turn into a route. Right. And right. if so, I guess part of one of the things that I I'm wanting here, I think I'm wanting, is that I'm wanting it to be. I'm pretty sure I'm wanting this to be the Green Elves' fault. Um, like it doesn't have to be somebody's fault, but it kind of does. Is. Yeah, like it, it, it's Denethor's fault because he's rash. Right. He right. acts rashly. He sees that the Grails are are alone. That it, you know, and he's concerned for their safety. So he's the one who orders the charge on the Orcish flank. Right. Now, because and also he doesn't realize. Mablong knows, but he but Denethor doesn't realize that there's enough of the orcs to just turn around and swat him. Right. Like so, which is exactly what happens. Right. And and that fallback that fallback maneuver turns into a rout as a result. Right. Uh, the fallback maneuver to Amon Ereb. Yes. So they're going to be on Amon Ereb at first and then they see no, 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 no. the orcs engage. No, so the way that we have it set up um, is that there's a morass okay. in between Amon Ereb and the battlefield. There's right. like a, a street that runs along behind the way we've set it up is there's a stream that runs along behind Amon Amon Arab, mm-hmm. and that the stream passes through, it, like kind of overflows the bank on one side, right. creating this this swampy area. Okay, um, yeah. in between Amon Arab and the battlefield. Okay, um, we invented this entirely. Yeah, absolutely. Course, but, yeah, why know. not? That's great. If the elves are choosing the terrain, then we can make the terrain. You know. Whatever, you know, that's fine. Like, they're choosing the terrain. That's what they should do. Um, and if Thingol is there, then he can choose when he's going to attack the orcs. And the orcs are that's, not... That's the plan. The orcs are not strategic. The orcs' plan is, like, we march in this direction and kill stuff, right? So right. they're perfectly cheerful. The, the orcs are cheerfully ready to be ambushed at any point, right? Uh, right. So maneuvering them into uh, into bad terrain shouldn't be challenging, in theory. Thingol um, thinks that he's going to be able to choose when the battle is going to begin, but he isn't. The orc kinda, orcs kind of take that from him, so he thinks that he can wait until everybody's in position, and the orcs will just hang out and kind of wait for him to be ready, essentially. You know, but not necessarily like that, because uh, obviously he thinks the dwarves are going to arrive a lot sooner than they do. Right. So he's expecting that it may be a mere matter of an hour. Why? Why doesn't Thingol just let him go, and fall back and set up a different ambush after the dwarves get there? Well, he gets into posi- into position mm-hmm. to be ready for when the dwarves get there, and they don't. And they don't. So he puts himself in the paths of the orcs, and then the orcs start. Yeah, so the path, they're, they're camped. They're camped. Yeah. Right. But as soon as the orcs discover the Sindar, the orcs attack. Obviously. The orcs attack. Yeah. Right. That's what so, they do. And the Thingol is of the opinion that he can win this battle, so he launches his attack, his counterattack at the same time. He doesn't retreat because he thinks, okay, this is the right time. Like the dwarves right. aren't there, but we'll just go with it anyway. Right. Um, it's not Thingol's intention to involve the green elves at this time. The green elves are supposed to be waiting for the dwarves and doing mop up, but 
Denethor just rushes in, and now Thingol isn't engaged in a battle. He doesn't have the freedom to fall back or relieve Denethor in some way. So with the green elves attacking on one side and the dwarves attacking on the other side, the elves were going to, the green elves rather, were going to kind of hang back and just like shoot into the middle, <laughs> right? Like just kill a bunch of orcs. Right, essentially. Well, yeah. Right, yeah. Like, and the, dwarves, the, the orcs might try to retreat into the morass, um, but that is just going to make them even easier targets for the green elves. Right. Because they're going to be slowed down. Right. Um, okay. One, one imagines that the that the grails, and I, again, we should have called this out, the grails are probably at least supplying them with a good number of steel arrows. Steel-headed arrows. Right. Right. Okay. Um, Mablung brings warlike supplies, though not enough for everybody. Uh, yeah. He, bring, he brings... A, it, it, but let's say that he brings enough ammunition... For most of them, right? Because right. that's 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 like that's not a suit of armor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Okay, and um, uh, okay. So when the dwarves don't show up, and the green the gray elves are fighting the orcs essentially by themselves. Denethor sees them, sees that the orcs are too many for them, sees that the Grey Elves are in fact going to be, would be overrun, um, and so therefore calls a charge and they lay into the side of the orcs and then the orcs on that side, to, while continuing to engage Thingol on the other side, the, 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 you know, the left flank of the orcs turns and charges at the Green Elves, uh, and they can't stand against them. And this is where Denethor dies, trying to hold them off as the gray, green elves try to retreat and they retreat back to Amon Ereb. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, one of the things that I want to be very careful with, with this bit is to show that Denethor, he's not being merely rash, right? Like he is, he's, he's brave and he's doing what he thinks is the, is the right thing to do. Um, because it needs to be done. Right. Because right. He can't bear to watch his new friends get slaughtered. Right. You know, right. And maybe Mablo is made out of colder stuff and he can, you know, he can kind of like hold back and, and try to maneuver into a, a better position. Um, but, but Denethor is a, a warmer individual. Right. Right. Um, Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So I'm, I'm seeing this now. So the green elves are rescued in the end by Thingol. So the ends come and they, they help to stave off the assault, but it's not enough to completely stop it. It, 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 so after a brief respite, it now looks like the green elves are going to be completely slaughtered and the ants are going to be slaughtered until Thingol breaks through, right? So we just have what Thingol eventually wins, and yeah, Thingol, Thingol basically wins through. Like he he routes the orcs that are in his way, right? right? And so he's able to approach Amonarab and put the ones that are, that are still right. Okay, so we should have a moment then. We should have sort of... Thingol will have been fighting defensively, right? He will have set up a defensive front 
and he will have been mm-hmm. receiving the charge of the orcs, right? And be and and holding them back and beating them off to this mm-hmm. point. Like that's that that was his job at first, right? Um, and then, so he should see the orcs swarming over Amonarab, right? Yeah. Well, we can have a shot where he sees that. Yeah. Um, and then he's well, going to have to order a charge, right? They're going to have to weave their defenses and and push down through the end so that they push through the or- the orcs that are um, uh, that are still attacking them so that they can get up to Amonarab. And... Right. Yes. And also, Balrog yes. has shifted his attention. Right. Um, essentially, the arrival of the Ents forces Baldog to turn and deal with what's going on in Amonera. Yes. Because now his guys can't can't deal with this enemy, like right. not without not without severe motivation and a little bit of leadership by example. Right. So he goes up there, and now the orcs that are facing Thingol are definitely more afraid of the Grey Elves than they are of Baldog, who isn't there. Right. Exactly. Um, but yeah, we do have to have, but it's obviously a risk for them to leave their defensive position, right? Uh, the gray elves. So we have to have a moment where Thingol sees the gray elves and the Ents in danger, right? Bulldog charging his way up the hill. He maybe sees Bulldog take down an Ent, right? As I know you guys had an Ent being taken down by Bulldog with an ax, right? Um, which I think is good. So, um, Thingol sees that. A young, young end. end. Right, not tree. Well, they're all young, right? <laughs> in theory. Uh, Just keep in mind that this is a pretty far distance and it's pitch black. Right. Yeah. But, so, you know, I don't know elf. How so how he's. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know how specifically he can see. In that, in that, in There's the torches. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the orcs would have uh, torches, right? The orcs would be all yeah. about torches, right? Let's cut things up yeah, and set them on fire, right? That's that would be an orc thing. Um, yeah. uh, so, okay, yeah, all right. Uh, yes, we can find a place to add in like a, a brief, a brief shot of Thingol. Thingol um, should charge. One of his people should be like, but if we charge, they could, you know, they're 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 more than you know. They outnumber us. They'll over, you know, they they'll overrun us uh, in the open, yeah. right? And Thingol's like, you know, the great the green elves need us. Charge anyway, you know, and then they charge and come through. So I mean, we have to show th- this is a, this is a. I mean, I remember as you guys were emphasizing before, this is our only chance to show Thingol in battle. We'll never see it again, yeah. right? So yeah. uh, Thingol having that kind of a, you know damn the torpedoes battle leadership moment is kind of cool, actually, right? And it's and it kind of mirrors what Denethor did. Yeah, like yeah, honors exactly. that exactly. Way. It does. Yeah, um, he responds to the 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 rash, uh, you know, unwise but bold and self sacrificing charge of Denethor uh, with uh, his own, you know, calculated risk at least uh, charge at the end, which rescues them. So yeah, no, that all, that all, that all works exactly, except more successful as Aslan's compass says. Yeah. On Twitch. Exactly. Um, so, you know, it will be, it will be the reciprocation, but the more successful reciprocation. And then they, they drive them off together. And so we have, you know, then Thingol and Mablung meeting on the field there, uh, at the end there. Okay, good. All right. I'm feeling clearer about that. Um, it's, it's really good to have a, uh, a clear visual concept uh, of these things. Um, 
Okay. I, I'm not surprised. In order to explain it at the time, I we made we came up with this. I I had to draw a very hasty map. Right. Which. <laughs> yeah. It's all anyway. good. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. That's uh, uh, just what I'm just what I'm thinking about. So okay. Um, uh, meanwhile, on the Helcaraxa, by the way, I loved the Helcaraxa. Again, another just overview thing. I love the Helcaraxa stuff. I thought you guys did a great job with the Helcaraxa stuff. I've got one issue with the Helcaraxa thing, but it's later, so I won't worry about it right now. Um, this is the episode. Is this the one in which... Okay, no, this is where they're deciding to go, right? So, okay. Um, and we get Elenway's speech about uh, why they should go, and I really like Elenway being the spokesperson for that. Um, for so many reasons, um, both to have her death be not her own fault, but to have her her death be something which she obviously was willing to risk her. You know, there's some irony to it, but it's not just bitter irony, right? It's also there's also self sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. She is. Uh, uh, she 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 is the agent uh, of her own uh, destiny there, and she's also right. Like you know that. This is something that could even kind of come out in conversation later, I would think, uh, a conversation perhaps between Fingolfin and Turgon, because um, Turgon, I got to think, is going to feel fairly bitter about this, right? Um, you know, Turgon is going to recall what Elenway says about, you know, their family having a dest- a great destiny in Middle-earth um, and saying, like, you know, I get, you know... He- Part of his bitterness, you know, or rather that his grief for her death could be also tangled with a sense of bitterness and 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 remorse like she was a fool. Right. She was wrong. Um, She was the one who said we should go and that our family had this great destiny and and she's and it killed her. Right. Um, Can even her, you know, foresight, which he was, you know, want to trust implicitly, um, uh, be trust, you know, her, her foresight failed her. Right. Um, uh, as will be said of Gandalf later on. Um, and Fingolfin can, uh, or Fingolfin or somebody else, if we want to give the speech to somebody else, you know, can basically say, you know, in fact, we can even foreshadow that conversation if we wanted to, you know, that her foresight was not based on, uh, you know, safety for herself. She didn't say that she knew that they would all survive and that everything would be happy. She just said that their family was going to, you know, and, and you still have, you still have Idril, right? And you still have, you know, your uh, your siblings, like your your family. You know, you still have Arathel, right? You still have, uh, you still have Idril. Um, no. Yeah, exactly. Uh, both of those are bound to turn out equally well. Um, but uh, but anyway, yeah. So t- some kind of you know because. We on on the one hand we want to you know Turgon is going to be the one who's going to wear that kind of prophetic mantle right in Middle Earth, um, so maintaining that and showing him Im- sort of embracing that, but I think it's really interesting that we have that prophetic mantle um, tangled with his grief. You know, um, I think that that is one of the consequences of having a Lenway speak that out and then die. Uh, on the Helcaraxa, which I think is just so interesting. So, I mean, that opens up so many really powerful story possibilities. I just love how that, how that, how that works. Uh, Lenway's foretelling and then tragic death are awesome. Um, quick, quick, and any, any quick Helcaraxa thought, I, we, we, this is only the very beginning. This is only the Helcaraxa decision, of course, as I said, but, um, uh, 
Yeah. Um, just it, it, we had to kind of be very careful with what we were doing here because we basically have several points at which we are, if we were not careful, we'd be asking Ben Golfin's host the same question two or three or four times. Right. Right. You know, do we go or do we not go? Right. And you know, you can't just keep hammering that same question over and over again, which is this kind of essentially this a similar problem to what we had yes. with um with Arwen in the season two frame. Yes. Um. So what we were what we were doing here was to make sure that we were kind of nuancing the difference between do we continue or do we not? Now we're seeing how hard this is going to be. Is this, like, do we try to find some other way? You know, what do we do? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, But one of the effects of one way in which there is one way in which I think the continued hammering on the one repeated question because of course at the end of the day it's not like they're not going to be asking that question again and again right i mean i agree that it's not very interesting for us just to keep coming back to it and giving the same answer to it every time right but but at the same time somebody in that situation when they are in a hardship which they chose themselves right they knew this was going to be hard they didn't know how how hard but they knew it was going to be hard they chose to do it um, the question is, do, you know, do you still want to go? Do you want to, or should we turn back? Because as things get worse and worse and worse, the question is the same, but the answers and the reasoning behind the answers can't just be the same, right? Um, the reason to start out on that journey isn't necessarily the same as the reason for continuing after things have gotten so horrible, right? Um, right, the whole sunk cost fallacy that just because you started something and invested all this time and effort doesn't mean you should keep going. Right, exactly. And and in, in, in particular, one of the things that I'm thinking of is wanting to see a kind of refining process for Fingolfin personally, but really for all of them. Um, there are a couple ways in which it can go, right? I mean, they could emerge... On the one hand, it's easy to say that they emerged from the Helcaraxa like hating Feanor even more than they hated him before, right? Um, but, you know, also I, I kind of wonder because, like, yes, it is it is psychologically viable that somebody who is undergoing an ordeal like that could latch on to something like anger against Feanor and have that fuel them so that when they get to the end of it, they're wholly obsessed with it, right? Because it's been the one thing that has kept them going throughout. But that's kind of exactly my question. There are some people, there's a, you know, and we had, it was Angrod, right? That we had be the, the, the voice of the spokesperson for this, um, for whom vengeance against Fanor is their primary motivating force, right? That is like their reason number one for crossing the Helcaraxa. But my question is, on, you know, day eight of the Helcaraxa crossing, is it still enough? Right? Do you decide, 
well, maybe we should just, is, is it worth dying for? You know, is it worth enduring everything that you're going to endure for? Um, the argument that I would want to make is that for the majority of the people of Fingolfin as they're traveling across, the negative, re- the bad reason, the vengeful reason, the anger, the rage, the be- sense of betrayal isn't going to be enough. That that's something that's going to be kind of almost burned away. Like if that were all that's driving them, they'd go, they would just have turned back because it's not worth it. Right. At the end of the day, it's not worth all of the death. It's not worth the suffering. Um, it's too high a cost just to get back at Feanor. Better to return to Valinor than that. There has to be a positive reason for moving forward. And again, we talked about this when we talked about this decision in the first place, right? That it, it can't just be vengeance. There has to be a... And this is one of the reasons why we talked about that speech which you guys gave to Elenway, right? Um, about the, the, the positive destiny that they have over in Middle-earth. This sense of duty that it is for some reason important. It, it is important. They need to go... They want to fight Morgoth. They don't want to... to you know, there, there are like good reasons for them to go. And I... Again, I can see it going one of two ways, right? Over over the course of the ordeal and the suffering. Either, again, you just become megalomaniacally focused on your, like, vengeance so that at the end all of the other good reasons have kind of gone and you just have the one thing which you have with increasing irrationality focused on to just kind of keep yourself going. Um, so either they come out just mad for revenge and, uh, you know, kind of burned out otherwise, or the revenge thing has kind of passed because it wasn't enough. Like it wasn't enough alone to keep them going. They have had to fall back on, they have, they have had to, they they may have been able to list four or five reasons, right? One of which was vengeance against Feanor that motivated them to start the journey. But by the end, it's not going to be enough to end the journey. So by the end of the journey, that will have refined down to really possibly one single thing. And that one thing I think should be a good thing. Um, And a positive and a constructive thing rather than a destructive thing. And I'm not saying that nobody feels vengeful anymore uh, and they're all over it, you know, by the time they get over. But I think that we should we should see something of that kind of refining process. Do do you follow? I mean, does this make any sense? I I agree. One of I want to go on. Sorry, I was going to say I want to see a similar refining process with Mithras after his ordeal hanging on Thangorajim. Yes. So. I consider the Hellcrox experience to have done the same thing to the host of Fingolfin. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a really wonderful point. Just the fact that when Fingolfin and Mithros meet again, there's going to be a kind of fellow feeling between them because of what they have endured, right? Um, and I think both of them will see that. Um, so in, in, in the episodes beyond this, uh, the next thing that's going to happen to them is that we're going to have, like, the death of hope, right? So right. Ellen, Ellen is going to die, right? Yeah. Uh, then we have... Then we have... The following episode, we see them kind of from Tillian's point of view. Right. And Tillian is deliberately giving them some hope back. They're not alone. Right. The right. final episode that they're on the Helcarax itself, um, Galadriel is clearly driven by... a thirst for revenge along with her desire to create kingdoms of her own and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that that isn't enough right. and that it has to be hope. Like right. hope is the thing that gets them past the Helcarax, not the desire for revenge. Right. 
Right. Yes, exactly. It has to be. It has to be hope, and also, and not just hope for themselves, but seeing themselves as the agents of hope, right? As the bringers yeah. of hope for Middle Earth. Yeah. Um, Even if it's a fool's hope. Yeah, yeah, and it certainly would 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 seem it. But of course, again, that could even be. I mean, that should be at the heart of Elenway's prophecy, right? Yeah. Um, there's. Uh, and I mean, and just the way, also, man, the way in which Elenway's prophecy foreshadows Huor's prophecy is also really cool, right? Um, yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, she's seeing this with the eyes of death, even though she doesn't realize it. <laughs> Nobody else does either, right? Yeah. No, I, I like it. It's good. It's it's it all works. Um, yeah. Good. Okay. Cool. Um, and uh, last thing. Uh, frame uh is uh okay yeah the beginning of the frame so i don't like aragorn getting lost mostly because i want him to i i think that his realization his, his realization that he was wrong to do what he did i think needs to come because again the parallel with aragorn is feanor specifically right um so his realization about being wrong should come with charging forward, right? Um, He's charged forward on his own. He's done the sort of made the Feanorian decision to say, you know, to decide that Hamilcar is useless baggage, right? Uh, And uh, only an impediment to his own uh, personal ambitions. And so he's going to leave behind. Yeah, we are. But I, I, but I, I don't, I'm, 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 if we show too soon that he my fear is that if we make him like get lost and like circle around and not realize that he circled around the only lesson that he's learning is that like he's incompetent and needs help which is like not a useless lesson to learn but it's a different lesson to learn and it certainly isn't one that Feanor learns so he's not in that way um so I'm kind of thinking yeah, I'm just saying I, that seems to me to introduce a factor that uh, I'm not really convinced is germane exactly. I would kind of want him to push forward confidently and not have his confidence be totally unfounded. Just like Fanor's isn't totally unfounded, right? I mean, like, he's confident because he's in fact good, right? He's in fact powerful. Have his confidence, actually, have his confidence. Um, supported in some way here? Well, yeah, because that's what's okay. going to happen with Feanor, right? Um, so, <laughs> if what if we uh, if we have him coming across like the tracks of the wolves, or maybe he discovers from afar like the dens of the wolves or something? Um, and it would have to be pretty darn afar if we're going to have them catch up with him in time before he gets slaughtered. Uh, so maybe that's not that's a non-starter. But at the least he could un, he could discover tracks or something, which he's then going to pursue. Right? Um, that would leave. So it have, have that happen at the beginning of the episode rather than the end of the episode. You're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm kind of thinking. So, but now <clears throat> I realize that introduces the question of what happens to him at the end of the uh, at the end of the. Um, well, he episode. could deliberately go back to that place. He could deliberately go to the place where they had the argument and 
right way to go. Well, here's my question. Why and, do we have him discovering that he's wrong already? Like, why should he have second thoughts before the end? Yeah. Uh, part, part of the issue is that in this scene, he's by himself. Yeah. He has no one to talk to or and, to explain himself to. Yes. So what we really have is a scene of young Aragorn walking through the woods. Yes. Like, that is what is happening on screen. Absolutely. So... If we have him find wolf tracks, then he can seem confident that, yep, I'm on the right track. I've done it right. Didn't need anybody else. Like, we can see that overconfidence in that scene. Yeah. But then where do we go with it? What does he do? So if there's a den of wolves to discover that he's going to try and fight on his own or something, like, we can kind of get there. But yeah, it's it's tough to have a character with no one to interact with. Exactly. And that's another reason why I'm a little hesitant about having him have a moment of realizing that he might have been wrong, because that's also just going to be flat difficult to convey. Because you got nobody to apologize to or express... I mean, we can have him looking remorseful or looking uncertain. I'm not saying it's impossible to convey that, but but for those two reasons, both Marie, from the point of view that you're talking about, about how just that it's challenging to do that, um, and I don't think it's essential... So, you know, so it's a it's a high degree of difficulty and I don't think we gain much from it. I think that, you know, the death of Hamilcar, like realizing that he caused the death of Hamilcar essentially by his rashness and his choice is enough moment is enough of a moment for him to realize that he screwed it up. Right. And that he was so wrong. What if he finds tracks at the beginning of the episode and sees like a uh, and comes to the top of a box canyon with. Uh, with like wolf dens below right. at the end, um, he smiles because he thinks he's he, he thinks he's he's succeeded here. Right, right. Exactly. now we're going to find out in another episode that he's bit off way more than he can chew. Right, um, but it's going to be but for now. He thinks that he's succeeded. Right, I like that. I get my my concern is time. If we have, you know. Uh, Eladon Elro here and Halberd catch up with Hamilcar. Hamilcar has his moment. Then they catch up with Aragorn. Or then he catches up. Uh, Hamilcar catches up with Aragorn. And all of that happens while he's getting down from the canyon to the den. Like No, no. It happens while he's tracking the, he's the wolves tracking, down. Right. So we're going backwards in time. but uh, Essentially, yeah. Yeah, because we're going to go back to like the moment when we're, we're kind of going to go back to before, like Hamilcar is just arrive is 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 we, just being caught up with. We could split by those the, up. He, he, what's that? We could split those up. We could have Aragorn discover the tracks at the beginning, and then have a Hamilcar scene at the end where he like maybe where the elders oh. catch up with him. And then we. Well, yeah, but that doesn't. It, it basically like abandons one thread. Yeah. And well, starts a new one. But otherwise, we're jumping around but, chronologically within the between the it, threads, which is it's a question of whether it's important to keep the frame snippets chronological or whether to keep the characters <laughs> thematically in one episode because you only get these brief little glimpses. Well, um, that's it. I think. That, 
if the elders are catching up with Hamilcar right when he's abandoned and we see him in the same place where we last saw him abandoned, that step back in time shouldn't be too confusing because he's the same guy in the same place. It might look a little silly that he hasn't moved since the last time we well, saw him. Well, that's it. I mean, I think I would have to assume that time has passed. Well, if we if we go back to the moment that Aragorn left him, right? Even if we got like we see Aragorn leaving him now from his point of view. Like if, yes. if in the original shots we have Aragorn looking down at him, in this sh- shot we have uh, Hamilcar looking up at Aragorn as Aragorn's leaving in the final moment as as Aragorn's leaving, and then have him have him turn away and we just do like a kind of time moves, right, bit where he's he's walking away, he's trying to find a way past on his own, and then they come up on him in that scene. It'll, it'll look, like, it'll be obvious that we're going back in time, um, but also obvious that it he just wasn't just standing there. Yeah. Yeah. Am I, am I, am I making... Um, no, I, I'm getting it. I, my, I, my, my, the thing that I'm kind of just kind of thinking through here is I'm trying to imagine how this would come off under these circumstances. If the whole episodes were about them, we can, you know, you can taking, yeah, you have more options. That yeah. Way. Take, taking one thread through one episode and then in the next episode, stepping backwards in time and pursuing the thread. Like that's a thing you can do when we're only getting 30 to 60 seconds of them at the beginning and end of the, each episode. It's uh, harder. It's, it's, it's several minutes. Okay. We're talking about like four or five minutes. Maybe. Mm, no, depends. but it wouldn't. It, like, in this episode, they're probably shorter scenes. They're probably shorter scenes. No dialogue so. and you can't only. In the next episode, we can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can have a four minute sequence at the beginning of the, of the next episode. Yeah. To establish yeah. what's Yeah, no, we, when we get dialogue with Halberd and, and everything. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Well, we, I'm not, I won't worry about that over much right now then. But uh, I just, it was the, my main thing was about the, when the moment sure, of realization for Estelle comes. So. Yes. Um, okay. We can okay. definitely move that out of uh, episode nine. No problem. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. Hey, I have an idea. Let's talk about episode 10. <laughs> Now, Please. let me make this Please. perfectly clear. Well. Let me make this per- I know that this seems like we were making horrible progress, but however, uh, this is the thing that I would like to point out. We have we have laid the groundwork for several future episodes, so watch the efficiency now. We're going to be so much faster from here on. Okay. Okay. So, episode 10. Which focuses on the attack by, uh, uh, by not by Bulldog, by uh, Gothmog on the Feanorian camp, right? And we end up with the uh, near fatal wounding of Feanor, right, at the end of uh, uh, mm-hmm. this um, episode. But okay, right. Um, <laughs> Zach says I say that every session, but it's it's almost always true. So okay, hang on. So we've got right. We've got the attack on the camp. We've got uh, Huan being awesome, um, uh, and the establishment of his fearsome reputation as a wolf killer. Just absolutely love that. Um, we have Thanor's wounding and rescue, 
right? That was another thing. No, yeah. wait. The rescue's at the beginning of the next episode, right? We just yes. have him getting stabbed. Okay, fine. Um, does Gothmog stab him? Of course. Yeah, Gothmog's the one who kills him. Okay. Um, he deserves no less. We're 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 yeah, hilariously sidelining him at the end of this season. Yes. Well, who Gothmog? You mean? No, no Feanor. Feanor. Oh yeah. I mean, it's true. Actually, I was really kind of thinking about that. Um, that um, I wonder what like a real Hollywood studio would do with this. I mean, like, would they be willing to kill off Feanor right away? Like after the first they, battle in Middle Earth, they would end. They would end the series. They would end the season with Feanor's death. Well, at the very least, but I mean, would they even do it? I mean, would would wouldn't they want Feanor to survive? It's like he's your protagonist, right? I mean, he's been the like, well, he's like sort of pro slash anti protagonist, but um, but he's the main character, right? I mean, he's the he's the yeah. central figure it's, at the very least. It's certainly an unusual choice to do it this way. Yeah, I think that most readers have that reaction in the book, though, the way Tolkien did it, of yeah. like, "Oh my gosh, Feanor's did already Feanor's just got like, middle just bam, just like okay, yeah." The- so I think we've recreated that shock in the yeah. viewer of this was not where I expected this to go. Yeah, exactly. and, and also I really enjoy the kind of meta narrative of us telling Feanor no you are not the most important person in this story <laughs> yeah right no exactly that's cool but no I, I agree I mean the death of Feanor like it's like right up there with the death of Ahab at the end of Moby Dick as far as like <laughs> I mean in fact it's a lot like that um, you know like the the central protagonist who built himself up as like the, like I am the, like the mighty one. And, and I will, you know, I would smite the sun if it offended me, says Captain Ahab. And, uh, and then like in the end, it's just like, whoop. I mean, it's not even a fight. It's just over. Uh, and 26 he, pages and he dies instantly. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the same thing with fan or like I should, you know, all the things like his defiance at the doom of Mandos and is like, I will dare anything. And I, and now I am here to like rain my vengeance down upon dead, like done over. Right. <laughs> at, the, at the very beginning. And it's anyway. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's kind of, like I said, I, I, I kind of wonder if, uh, a real Hollywood production doing this would actually uh, be willing to go through it. I mean, I'm kind of imagining presenting the outline, like a basic outline of the story uh, to a real Hollywood studio and then being like, wait, no, seriously, he dies now. No way. We're not doing that. Uh, You can sometimes get away with things if you've had more seasons of a show. Right. So I feel like if this were season 18, right. The studio would totally be like, yeah, do whatever you want, guys. It's fine. Right. (laughs) Um, Season three, you're right. It's a harder sell. <laughs> yeah. It's not season one, at least. In season one, you absolutely cannot do this on a show because you can't right. throw the viewers that kind of curveball and expect uh, them uh, to accept it. Right. Uh, Game of Thrones, again, massively popular show. Ned Stark dead at the end of the first season. It's like, it's not that on her. Yes, but uh, not dead several episodes before in a beginning of the episode context so let's just write his death out of here like you can't just um, quietly write Mr. Stark out of your show yeah yeah absolutely no like what if if that was if at least we were a making show, moment. Yeah. if we were if we were making the show on the fly like a lot of shows are written 
um, and we did this, people would think that we were mad at um, Richard yeah, Armitage. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. When, when an actor gets written out of a show abruptly and in an uh, ignoble way, right. it definitely looks like, oh, you asked for more money, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. Like, we're essentially putting him on a bus is the <laughs> TV tropes term. Right, right. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, that guy doesn't work here anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could totally imagine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, if people didn't have access to the Silmarillion itself, and were just, that, it, it's totally what it would look like if they didn't know that it came from the text. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Because yep. even in its way, like, I, okay, I don't want to get into talking about it too much, but actually the, the the Ned Stark thing is to me a sort of a false parallel. I mean, it's it's surprising that they go through with the execution, but it's a, it's like the whole, everything builds up to that. I mean, even in the book, everything yeah, builds true. up to that. You know, he's that's about true. to undertake this major coup and then it reverses on him and he dies, right? So it's unexpected. Um, it's, you know, like... Yeah you might be expecting him to get rescued or just, you know, something, you know, his sentence commuted or something. The fact they go through with the beheading is in fact shocking, but, but it's, this is more like, you know, if Ned Stark had died in a skirmish on the way to the city, you know what I mean? Like this, <laughs> this that's that. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, anyhow. Okay. All right. All right sorry. So, so we've got Fanor uh, uh, wounded, and as you say, we've got a lot of unresolved tension here at the end. Uh, and we do get a we do get a Wenway's death in this episode, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Good. Um, so uh, let's start off talking about the. Well, we've just been talking about Fanor, so let's carry on talking about Fanor. Um, we have the uh, the the. This is where we get the Amros issues. We didn't really get much of the fan orient. We get any of the fan orients in episode nine, right? We stayed away from the fan orients uh, in episode yeah, nine, mostly. Because we, we didn't have a lot of time for them. So basically what we did was we just had visits with Kelligorm scouting things out. And we yeah. kind of got political situation through his conversations with Hua. Right, right. Exactly. And I love that idea, by the way. So the your concept is that uh, Kelgorm can talk to uh, to Huan, but we don't understand him or get him. So it's like talking to Chewbacca or R2-D2, right? Yeah. I, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that. Um, it's. I think that's a great way to, uh, to convey it. Because, I mean, it's <clears throat> when Huan speaks, you know, like the three times in which Huan speaks with words... Um, it would be like all of a sudden if Chewbacca spoke in English, that'd be shocking, right? I mean, it would be it would be alarming if all of a sudden that happened. Um, and not like, you know, like he's learning English, right? But like all of a sudden he speaks fluently in English, um, that would be that would be that would be shocking. So yeah, I like that. I uh, I, I think that that's a great concept. Anyway, okay. So back in Mithrim, we have a lot of talk, and what we're getting from the talk is primarily Amros being angry. Uh, and we see Kurufin being – we're establishing Kurufin here as the manipulative one who is trying to further his father's ends, right? Yes, he's the schemer, yeah. and we see that play out yes. now. We see uh, – uh, yes, Kurufin as schemer and as the clear heir of his father when it comes to character and purposes, right? You know, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the natural – right. So, okay. Um, 
Feanor's spiritual successor. Yeah, exactly. Right. That that's that's though different in his approach, right? Because he's yes. less forceful than Feanor. We don't see him ever trying to overwhelm anybody. He's the kind of the behind the scenes manipulator. But but yes, yes, exactly. Okay. Um, the I want to talk for a second about the Feanorians' response to the orcs when they first see them coming in, because of course they don't have any context, even. Um, even uh, what's his name, um, Kierden has more context because at least like you know, Celeborn is there, so Celeborn can convey you know like the story of like Mablung's encounter with the orcs, so they know of the orcs. Even though Kierden won't ever have seen them either, right? Um, well, Celeborn's seen them. Celeborn has seen them, them. right? Yeah, but Kierden exactly. has not. Kierden has only seen. Right, exactly. So, uh, so even when you know when they're looking at the burn ships and they're saying, "Oh, this looks like orc work," they know way more. You know, even Kierden, who's never seen one before, knows more about orcs than the Feanorians do. Right? Who Correct. No it's a surprise this at all. So, yeah, it's a surprise to them. Yeah. So we have a kind. Of, now, obviously, we're not in a situation like Mablung where we had this, like, um, you know. <laughs> first contact between the races goes awry situation, right? Where they discover the orcs. Um, that's oh, not you know, here. They're just being attacked. You know, uh, their camp is being overrun by these frightening looking things. Um, I was interested in your idea that their first reaction is that these are like spiritual beings of some, like they're demons of some kind, right? That these are like demons of Morgoth. Um, which makes yeah. a lot of sense because they wouldn't know that he had like mortal servants, right? Right. Why would they think right. that? Um, where yeah. would those come from even? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I thought of while we were setting this scene up was that, bit, have you ever seen the 13th warrior? Mm-mm. It's on my list, what? but I haven't seen it. I know. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> sorry. It's on there, my list. It's not a great work of cinema, but you know it's 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 a fun movie, and it's related to Beowulf. I know, <laughs> yeah. I know. That's why it's on my list. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it takes some creative license, obviously, but yeah. part of the plot line in that film is that they originally think that the villains they're facing are monsters or mm. demons or you know supernatural creatures, and then at some point they recognize that their enemy is actually a group of people. Yeah. So, I mean, they're still scary and monsters, but they're just humans who can be killed like any other human. Right. Right. When the the protagonist character kills one of them and realizes that he's killed them, and he starts repeating over and over again, it's a man. It's right. a man. It's a man. And then he just plays <laughs> into, like, a, a number of them. Um, so, like, that's kind of what I, for Kurofin to kind of have a moment like that. Right. Right. Hey, yeah. we can kill these things. We, Let's exactly. do it. <laughs> we can kill these things. And it's 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 not only not that hard to kill these things, but it's also kind of satisfying to kill these things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because like, um, we've already shown the tragedy of the kinslaying. Yes. This battle is not a tragedy. Like yes. what's happening in this battle is it is fun to kill orcs. And right. let's do a lot of that. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's... Uh, um. Yes. Yeah. No. I. I, it's I like that. Battle. I like that. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, now, Brianna was just asking: Is this the part of the podcast where we discuss if orcs have elf souls? 
No, no, this is not that part of the podcast. But uh, let us <laughs> let us. Let the Feanorians certainly don't think about that question. They're at this certainly time. not thinking about this question. No, they, they do not consider the metaphysical nature of orcs. They just recognize that orcs are killable, and right. then they kill them. But I will say this, Brianna. This is the time in this podcast when we think about at what point in this podcast will we think about that. Um, well, and we kind of already have much we earlier. Have some, yeah. But we have to think about... Yeah. But what we haven't thought about is when the elves are going to think about this. Right. right. Elrond, presumably, at some point has sat down and thought, given this question some thought by the time we reach him in the Third Age. you got to think at so. At this point in the game, nobody has. So at what point do you have that transition? Who decides to ask the philosophical questions I gotta think as soon as we're like set up and you know at the very latest by the time uh, the leaguer is in place in season four somebody's got to be asking the question like okay hang on what the heck are these orcs anyway where did they come from you know that sounds like a question that would be answered in the same conversation where finrod is talking metaphysical things with a human person. Ah. Like Indreth or somebody. (laughs) Yeah. Which is not now. Yeah. No, because when the... Ooh. Oh. Ah. Okay. That's what the elves... (laughs) That's what the elves think. That's got to be what the elves think. Right? When the elves take time to think about this, they know there was going to be another race coming. Right? They have to think these are the men, right? This is it. These are the followers. Melkor has taken them and corrupted them and set them against us. Oh, yeah. no. That's got to be... What else would they think, right? They're, they yeah, can't, you're right. They, they can't suspect the truth, right, that these, were, that, these, that these are derived from elves, right? So that's, that's obvious because they, they knew that there was going to be another race, and here's another race, right? And it's, like, not anything like they were... I imagine believe, it probably comes out eventually like because the orcs probably know it totally will it totally and in fact when finrod meets the men then obviously then the discussion is going to begin in earnest we're like okay no wait those are the men so you know know men have had conversation like just conversational conversations with orcs at some point i wonder else really and do the uh do the uh you know did the did the men think the same thing about the orcs that the orcs were the you know, the older race that came before them. Right. Um, the elves. Yeah. <laughs> the men thought they were the, elves. The, the men thought they were elves. Exactly. Were yeah. No, I mean, that's, yeah. that makes all kinds of sense. Oh yeah. Now, I mean, obviously this okay. is a season four question, but, uh, um, yes. yeah. Uh, but yeah, but I've got to think it can't be, they've got to start asking the question almost right. I mean, not immediately. We're still in crisis mode still at the very beginning of season four, but once things get out of crisis mode, they have to start asking the question right away. Yes. You know, yeah. who, who the heck are these creatures anyway? And why are we, uh, what, you know, what's going on here? So yeah, season four, Zach, as Zach points out, there's always room in season four. Cause I agree there's, you know, we can do yeah. there's there's, <laughs> there's, there's barely anything four. in season four. So we've got to, we've got to, we've got to, you know, fill up the, Introduction of Glaurung. Of course, we have plenty of. <laughs> yeah, we've got we've, we've got to fill up the vast empty spaces of season four. So yeah, totally, we'll have time there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, excellent. Okay, sorry, very good. So um, then we get Nolor slaughtering orcs, and we get them right. We show them that they are way different and way like the, the difference between even the gray elves and the Noldor should be 
you know, extreme, you know, we should have, uh, you know, if the, um, you know, if Feanor has a trained army. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if we have on the screen, like the losses, yeah, the green elves are like unarmed, you know, like scattershot militia who don't really even really hold together and don't have any idea what to do. Uh, the gray elves have armor and they have a clear leader whom they're following, but they're not highly coordinated. The Noldor should be like, you know, forming like, you know, I, I, like, you know, they, they could be even, you know, doing really sophisticated things like the Roman turtle and like, you know, stuff like that, you know, I I get there. We had them, we had Feanor training his men, to, in phalanx warfare back in Formanos, which is yeah. what we're we're kind of seeing here. That's going to break, obviously, because they're going to chase these guys. Um, but in the opening the opening segments of this, that's what we're going to see. Right. Yep. No, I like it. I like it. That that makes all kinds of sense. So, and then Fanor confronts Gothmog and two other Balrogs. Um, how well does he do? It and stays on his feet, which is impressive. I don't think he wounds the Balrogs, though. It's yeah. it's not an inconsequential threat. Yeah. They take him like, seriously, this... but he's not... Well, they don't initially. Yeah. But they do afterwards, and this is part of the reason why they pull back. Because as, for for whatever they know... This is an army of several thousand of that guy, right? That's that's rushing toward us. Maybe we might, because like you, you gotta you gotta believe that the Feanorian army could take two to three Balrogs. They have to be able to. There's no way that that the Balrogs yeah. would walk away from that. Probably, yes, yes. Um... We're never going to put Balrogs in a situation where we Balrogs see them overwhelmed situation. by an army. Yeah. But, right. but the reason they're not well, in that situation just, is because they leave. <laughs> right. right. They're smart enough to realize this is not a good place to stand. How many total Balrogs do we decide? Seven? I think nine? seven to nine. Seven they're, to nine. They're not alive at this time. They're what? How, what'd you say? There are nine left. Nine left. Five at, at Nine alive at this time. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, and and Morgoth always keeps two in his throne room. Right, he keeps two in his throne room. Well, I guess we can so always kill any here. number of them at in the uh, in the uh, War of Wrath. In the War of Wrath, yeah. So it doesn't really mm-hmm. and cause, so oh, yeah. And we're gonna have two survive two after survive. the War of Wrath: the Durin's Bane and then one other unnamed, unknown Balrog who just disappears into Middle Earth history. <laughs> For uh, for role playing game masters to, exactly. to play yeah. around, it's with. just handy to have another a spare Balrog just in case because you never know when you'll need one. Um, well, you, you know that somebody's going to write the the RPG module to to uh, to uh, re, to recapture the the Palantir that Amrod um, that, that Amrod that lost. Amrod lost. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So no, we have to leave. We do have to leave some uh, quest lines open. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Good, good point. So, so if there are nine, we need to kill off seven. Uh, Gorfindel, Ecthelion. Um, okay, that's two. Uh, 
that leaves us five for the War of Wrath, which, quite honestly, I don't want to reduce the big deal that yeah. those Balrog deaths are in Gondolin because yeah. it's the only time it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we don't want to kill a Balrog here, certainly. No, 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 no. We definitely don't want to kill a Balrog here. Having having a, a Fanor take one down would be would be because that would make his death, in some sense, everybody who kills a Balrog dies, but dies self sacrificially, right? I mean, there's an element of self sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Like you are giving your life uh, for this. We don't want to have an, any element of self sacrifice in Fanor's death, um, right? So that that's yeah clearly we we can't have that. Um, okay. Anyway, all right, all right, that's fine. So, but I guess the the brunt of my primary question there was, how anticlimactic do we have Fanor's conflict with the Balrogs? Um, it's a fight. It's I a would fight. say it's a fight. I would, yeah, because yeah, like he's on his feet the whole time. He doesn't go down. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. Because I mean, it's a little bit tempting, to, you know, for Fanor to, again to do a, to do a Captain Ahab moment, right? For Fanor to come striding in, feeling like the earth shakes under his feet, and you know, standing there in defiance, and then just to have the the Balrogs just swat, like, swat him. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's tempting, but I think that's that's a temptation we should resist. This is if, Fanor's if last moment. Dolphin can stand up to Morgoth, yeah, for any length of time at all. Then Fanor can. And stand up to these guys for a bit. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. We do need to maintain the scale, uh, and we don't want to undermine the fact that Feanor is, in fact, the greatest, strongest, most powerful of all the elves ever. So, um, no matter like Fingolfin is awesome, but Feanor was greater than he. So, if he goes down too easily, even against three Balrogs, um, it is going to seem like he was a wimp. So. And Marielle, you're right. They're also not fighting all out. They're trying to capture him alive, uh, so that also would would impact it. Um, we could even have him taunt them for that, right? Saying like that they're not, you know. He uh, can tell they're not trying to, you know, they're not really trying to kill him. Um, perhaps he's they do wound him seriously, obviously though. So he has to get stabbed and or hit with fiery yeah. whips a few times like yeah he, he's gonna be clearly hurt while still fighting they're going to be deploying the whips almost exclusively right because they're trying to capture him. Okay. so mm-hmm. yeah but when it turns out that he's too quick or yeah that he's able to to because yeah. he's the spirit of fire yeah. he's probably relatively resistant to fire whips if he is resistance to yeah. fire whips Exactly. If he's gonna, if he's gonna, if he's gonna get stabbed, he has to provoke being stabbed. Like that's a somebody's getting in trouble for stabbing Fanor, right? Because he's not meant to get stabbed. So he has to push them to the point where they have to fight with their swords to defend themselves, essentially. Um, right. So the, the Balrogs are in danger in this battle, yeah. but never seriously wounded, never taken down. And they leave the field of battle before that could happen. Feanor is mortally wounded, but never falls until the very end of this episode. Uh, too much? Too, I suppose we couldn't have Feanor 
lop off one of their whip hands. Mm, losing a hand. That, hmm. That's it, that's really hard to do to a human. Uh, to, yeah, it's not as it's not that easy to chop off someone's hand, despite what the yeah. movies tell you. I know, uh, but of course, you know, uh, Marie. I, I'm sure Marie sees right away where I'm going with this, right? Uh, setting up a further step of the progression that would lead from Feanor to Hurin to Mariadoc, right? Um, and the chopping off of hands is the one of the primary things that they all have in common as they're being captured and overwhelmed by superior numbers. Um, so that's one point by itself that I think I would kind of like. I mean, it does mean that we would have a Balrog that we'd have to nickname Stumpy from now on. Uh, but I think they could manage or maybe even get healed. Like Morgoth could give him a new hand. Could he, could he oh, no. strike, <laughs> strike the whip hand of somebody, of somebody to the point where they have to drop it, which is yeah. what causes it to escalate to... Them, them drawing blades. Uh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. I, I, I understand the issue that a single slice through a hand requires a pretty impressive sword, which Fanor um, has, which Fanor has. Right. So it's like if you think about samurai movies with katanas, you can totally take a guy's hand off. You can totally take a guy's hand off. Yeah, that's fine. Um. I, I, yeah, so I'm okay with the idea of a Balrog losing a hand here, and even it being a permanent injury, because they can't shapeshift anymore, so there shouldn't right. be an easy way to grow that yeah. back. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I agree. We don't want to, like, make the sense that it's, they're, like, Salamanders. I mean, that could be the one Glorfindel kills later or something if we need to, but... Yeah, yeah. It could even be Gothmog, for that matter. No, no, Gothmog has to be strong warrior through the rest of the first stage. We can't yeah. maim yeah. him here. Exactly. <laughs> uh... But yeah, I mean, a, Mithros I mean, becomes a stronger warrior after losing a hand. Exactly. He does, but he's Mithros, and that's special. Mithras, we're not going exactly. right to show the story arc of the Balrog who <laughs> the training who montage the of the one-handed Balrog. And goes on to fight stronger and <laughs> with a hotter fire than before. <laughs> like, yeah, no. Well, so. can't beat Bane because Durin's Bane clearly has both hands. Of course not, but I mean, we've got we've got seven other Balrogs. We have several superfluous Balrogs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is one of the dudes. This would just become one of the dudes who who uh, um, is killed in the War of Wrath. Um, though it would be kind of fun, wouldn't it, to like be able to make allusions back to this if if like the you know the Balrogs in Gondolin, right? You know, and and one of them are. Um, uh, you know, ex- you know, as, as the Balrogs are lord- lording it around Gondolin, you know, we have one of the Balrogs, like you know, ch- you know, ch- and then like we see the one with no hand. Yeah, I've yeah. We take a metal hook with a with a spike on one end and jab it through his arm all the way up to the. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, could we make his skin look all rubbery too? Could we manage that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some, some scratches on his face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, uh, this is a you guys, you guys. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so it's and anyway, so I'm just yeah, like you know, cutting off his hand because and and then jokes. and then that that Balrog is the one who stabs him because he doesn't have his whip anymore, right? So like, and he he could be like really threatened, and he gets 
enraged because he's in pain because he got his hand cut off and so he draws his sword or he you know he takes his sword with his other hand because uh, it's his left hand it's his whip hand that he got the the you know cut off and so he stabs Fanor with his sword because he's got no whip anymore and he's really ticked off and uh, he's the one who's going to get in trouble right uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm okay with all of that I don't think that ruins any of our aura of how scary a Balrog is to fight because they're going to kill Fanor in the scene. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's okay. It's the one who gets his hand cut off who, who kills Fanor, right? You know, right. In, right. In, so, in rage. And it's not because they are incapable, but because they're holding back yes. because, and because they're not taken seriously. Right. Exactly. It doesn't, which is always a mistake to not take Fanor seriously. Right, exactly. And it does see, yeah, Zach, that's what I was thinking too that, you know, it, it seems a little bit odd perhaps that it's not Gothmog who stabs Fanor, but again, the problem here stabbing Fanor is a failure. Right? I mean, like, that's that's doing it wrong. That's that's losing, in a sense. Right? I mean, they've not lost the fight to Fanor um, but they weren't supposed to kill him. They, they, right. they've, they've lost. The goal is to capture. Yeah, yeah, they failed in their goal. And so if we have it not be Gothmog who does that, we're actually elevating, not, not diminishing him. Um, he can be enraged at Stumpy, right, for stabbing Fanor. You know, we could even show, uh, you know, and we, we, we can show his rage, Gothmog's rage, uh, at the death of Fanor. Um, or well, the, the, the Balrogs will not right. realize that Fanor has died here. Right. Yeah. They will not find out until the finale yeah. that Fanor is in fact dead. Yeah. Um, right. No. Exactly. Exactly. But the the but anyway, like it was still obviously uh, a bad move. Okay. Good. I like that. So we got Stumpy the Balrog, and I'm happy now. So let's um, go back. And um, can Balrogs talk in battle? Is it okay if Balrogs have dialogue in this battle sequence? Obviously, Durn's Bane's not going to talk in battle, but, like, can Gothmog or Stumpy um, I mean, say something? just seems to make a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. And I'm okay with Gothmog having... What if only okay. Gothmog... So Gothmog kind of lines. What if okay, only Gothmog yeah, talks? Gothmog should be a Balrog of few words, right? You know, he is not a loquacious Balrog. Um he can be taciturn and the other Balrog silent. Um, but okay. yeah, I mean, I think if we're going to have him being in a general s- sort of position, we need him to be able to speak. I mean, I think we can, we don't want to have Balrogs mm-hmm. waving semaphore flags or something. So um, we definitely need to have him speak. Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure you're okay with that before yeah. we, yeah, yeah, no, no, that's, that's a great question. Right. That's a great question. Okay. So, um, uh, brief at the Helcaraxa death scene of Elenway. Love it. Turgon diving to try to rescue Elenway. Uh, Turgon rescuing Idril, right? So we have the near death of, of little Idril and Idril being saved and uh, and uh, Turgon having to be restrained from continuing to dive for Elenway by Fingolfin. I, I, I lo- there's nothing I don't love about all that. That's really that's really awesome. Um, okay. Uh, that had you... Uh... Had you a little misty-eyed? It was that yeah. you were describing the other thing. Yeah, I, 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 when I was describing that, I I got a little choked up because I you know I immediately started thinking of of my father. You know, like like you know, putting yourself in that position. All of a sudden, it it brings out all the feels. Absolutely, yeah, no, definitely. It's um, 
<clears throat> it's a really powerful moment. And I love the way in which this, to some extent, Elenway has to be kind of the face of all of the Noldor who die in the, Hel- in the crossing of the Helkarax. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that we ha- we get corpses in the next episode too, um, but she's the she's the face, right, of all of them. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> and and I I thought that this worked really really well um, uh, in that in that role. So um, so yeah yeah okay I like that. Um, that was so I don't I don't have anything else to say about the Helcaraxa stuff from this episode because you know efficiently I already talked about all that stuff in advance so we're good. Um, and then mm. the last thing was the dwarf business, right? Yes, the dwarf business, which yes. we've already pretty much talked about. So it's so so here we get the the and I you know that I the the wear guild thing is just brilliant. Uh, just a wonderful piece of um excellent uh kind of cultural misapprehension, uh, you know, another example of there being active cause for antagonism on both sides and yet like innocent on both sides just a failure to understand each other. Um we can, you know, the way in which, um, again, I'm, I'm kind of hearing Gandalf in my head, you know, uh, or Aragorn, rather. Uh, I'm thinking of Aragorn's line. Um, you know, shall we, na- shall we now say, you know, a curse upon the stiff necks of elves, right? Um, because both of them are being stiff necked. You know, both of them are being, you know, there's kind of failure. There's some kind of blindness and stubbornness on both sides, as neither one of them are really open to kind of understanding the point of view of each other. Um, uh, except for Norn, right? Who, as you say, really emerges as like the hero of the dwarves over the course of this season. What's Norn's destiny, by the way? We can't just drop him, can we? He's going to die of old age off camera. Oh, man. Well, but he's got to do something else if he's going to die of old age, right? When, when are we like, we, we got to get Norn back. Okay. We have to have in season Go. four, we can come up with a suitable send-off for him. Yeah, um, we've, we've, in this season, he's still alive and well, an ambassador to the Elves of Doriath. He's got to accomplish something. You know, there's got to be some role that Norn has. Uh... Oops, sorry. What was that? The guy is the guy has had an amazingly full life for somebody who thought he was just going to be a a, a surveyor for the logging road. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's right. His career really, really took off in some unexpected ways. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I mean, that's essentially like I'm, you know, so I work at a, uh, a car dealership and I uh, help people. I, I basically help people get their cars fixed, essentially. Right. It would essentially be somebody comes in with a problem with their car and I, in order to fix it, come up with a concept that changes quantum physics. <laughs> right, exactly. Or, or, you know, again, you end up uh, you end up becoming the ambassador to a foreign nation as a result of uh, this yes. one particular yes. vehicular transaction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, of course, that happens all the time. <laughs> right, yeah, standard, uh, just a day in the life, I'm sure. Um, but no, that's great. Say, Norn is Norn is the people's hero, so we have to have we have to get Norn back in season four. We can't just drop him. That that has to, that has to happen. So just note for future. Um, now, how are we? Are we resolving this? Where do we go? 
with so no, we don't here because That's the, the, the theme of, the of episode yeah. 10 is that nobody nothing gets resolved ever right so yes Right. Okay. Well, that's that. Essentially, in in order to tie everything together in a way that made sense, um, without starting up new plot lines, right? The easiest way to do it was to tie it all together with people being held back in different circumstances. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, and ending with the shot of Fanor's face when he realizes he's failed. I like that. Um, okay. Good. Um, do I dare start the next episode? If I only get through two, oh man! Um, yeah. It's your call. I don't know what you what it's your total. thoughts were on episode eleven. To know if it was something you could just real quickly oh, rattle yeah. off. No, I'm sure episode eleven. I'm sure was fine. What was episode eleven again? Um, okay, now hang on. We'll we'll do this. Let's see. All right, here we go. All right, so oh yeah, no problem. Oh, this is the sun and moon. Yeah, no, this is going to be trivial. So um, okay, right. So we've got the resolving of the cliffhangers. Um, the 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 last call of the thou are right yeah, um, the introduction of the spider threat, but we don't do the girdle in this episode right that's episode twelve. Correct the, is I realize it's not what you guys originally asked for but yeah right that we was the one where we. Just, I, I have to say like that was I was a totally in kind of wait and see mode on that like it I, I did, but mm-hmm. it's fine like the the outlines. I'm fine with the way the outline took it, mostly because you guys have stretched out the spider attack on Menegroth a little bit more than I had originally been thinking. So, like, having the spiders progressively, like, working deeper and deeper in and, and you know, it look like Menegroth is on the verge of falling. Um, I had been originally imagining the establishment of the girdle as being something that happened like outside Menegroth as the spiders <laughs> were converging. So um, by kind of pushing that forward a little bit, um, then uh, that made that easier. So so instead of very efficiently discussing episode 11, I think what I'm going to do is just talk about episode 12 randomly instead, because that's the way that's the path of efficiency. Um uh, very good. Yeah. So, um, uh, anything quick that you guys wanted to, to emphasize or ask about in episode 11? Um, just a quick note on, on the spider thing. One thing that we, we noticed was that if we weren't careful, we were basically going like the, the Dorian plot, plot line was going to drop out of the story. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. and since we've already had a few issues with that in the season where, where you know, the plots aren't, naturally uh, arising and falling together uh, like you'd really want. Uh, we wanted to kind of push that out a little bit so that the the storylines kind of came to a resolution around the same time. Right. Yeah. Um, it does kind of make the, the, the finale plot line for Doriath a little bit anticlimactic by comparison. Um, Significantly. But, <laughs> Um, the only way to avoid that was to, again, to end the se- the season with Feanor's death, which would have kind of lined everything back up. Um, right, right. But, but it's okay. We just found ways to work right. within the framework as it existed. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. No, I, I think it's it's fine. I, I, th- I think it works. Um, 
I, yeah, as I said, I didn't end up objecting to the stretching out at all. And the thing that I really liked, and I thought you guys conveyed really well, um, I love how, like, unbeatable you make the spiders, right? You know, that um, this is really... I love how this serves to vindicate Sauron, right? Sauron, yeah. mm-hmm. it's 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 it's... It's a wonderful moment of like having your cake and eating it too, right? Where on the one hand we can establish Sauron as super competent villain, uh, and yet he loses, right? Um, yeah. Not because he because fails. He's not yeah, yeah. He's not there. It, like he has all of these, and he has all these fail safes to yes. kind of even even though he's not there, he still almost wins. Yes. Um, yes. Exactly, and uh, and his 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 stratagem about the spiders, uh, you know, is like totally. It just, I mean, it works out beautifully, and I love this the way in which th- how you guys had Thingol's army being like on the verge of being destroyed by the spiders as they were, you know. So here's the triumphant army returning, like, hey, we defeated the orc army almost all by ourselves against all the odds, and we, like, heroically saved the remnant of the green elves and prevented their total destruction, and we got no help from the dwarves, but turns out we didn't need it because we were that awesome. And then, like, and hooray, we're home triumphantly, and then wham, spiders, and it looks like they're going to get completely destroyed until, uh, until, until the girdle snaps in. I love that. I mean, I think that that's um, uh, that that works really well. Yeah, and there's no doubt in my mind that as we as we have this set up, that if Sauron had not been pulled back to the north, that the south probably would have been overrun. Yes. So the Noldor actually did accomplish something exactly just exactly. by showing up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's 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 because Sauron could have uh, maybe. Uh, you know, Sauron could have prevented, counteracted. Yeah. I mean, like, the idea of, like, a song battle between Melian and Sauron is, uh, um, is interesting, right? I mean, I don't think... We can't have it be like Sauron could just overcome Melian any time, or else why doesn't he? Right? You know, I mean... Yeah. He'll have a chance later yeah. on to come and take down the girdle after it's already established, uh, and he won't, so yeah. presumably he can't, but... Uh, but anyway, no... The fact- I agree. The fact that Luthien can take on Sauron in a song battle suggests that Melian yeah. probably would beat Sauron. Yeah. But they never they never fight it out, so we never see that. And right. the closest we get is by having both of them demonstrate their powers next to each other, but never right. against each other. And we're gonna have like so was I reading this like we get like no spiders are harmed during the course of this battle. So like the, the weapons of the Sindar are pretty much Serious. not seriously, yeah. Yeah. Like they yeah. cut off a few claws or Right. You know, maybe right. stab an eye out or something. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really like this because, of course, like we're going to have one of the things, of course, that we're doing here is setting up the journey of Baron. Right. When Baron travels mm-hmm. through where the spiders live, it's going to be a really big deal, not just because they're obviously big and intrinsically scary, um, but because we will have established how virtually impossible they are to kill. Uh, yeah, and we're going to send Aradel through that valley, and we're going to send the people of Halith through that valley. Like, yeah. we will have opportunities for some very interesting encounters with spiders. Yes. In and if we four, saw five. Yeah, yeah. If we saw Sheila shrugging things off um, here. Yes. Like, that, like, for the person who has watched this entire series, that's going to be when Sam's facing her by himself. Yes. 
big payoff for Sam. And also, of course, we have to remember that Sam's sting, right, the weapon with which Sam wounds Shelob, is a Noldor weapon, right? It's From Gondolin, yes. From Gondolin, exactly. Gondolin, uh, who's famous for making Bane weapons against spiders, <laughs> and dragons, and against spiders, <laughs> and, and goblins. And yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, Turgon's yeah. R&D department is Mag- fairly active, too. <laughs> Yeah, Gondolin is all about the magic swords. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And magic gems and all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, uh, thinking of the... Magic spiky helmets. Magic spiky helmets. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, go helmet! Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, of course, now I have that Bugs Bunny song in my head. Um, or rather, Elmer Fudd <laughs> singing, you know. Uh, about the magic helmet. But anyway, sorry. Okay, yes. So, um, agreed. Yeah, so the spiders, I just, I, I, I really I really liked the uselessness of the elvish weapons against them. And uh, yeah, now of course, no, it's fine. It's all good. Um, I mean, we do have to be careful because if the spiders are basically in, in violet in battle, then they're going to be, like the people of Haloth are not going to be able to fight them off because, um, <laughs> but anyway, we can handle that later on. That's obviously a later issue. Um yeah. Brianna says, I will never stop believing that Sting was young Arendel's sword. Oh, we'll have opportunities, Brianna. Uh, we'll definitely have opportunities uh, for... Uh, Sting has to feature, obviously. I mean, we can't not have Sting uh, in Gondolin. Um, uh, so, yes. Yes. Uh, there's... Yeah, the thought was to make it kind of a standard, like, sidearm that lots of elves in Gondolin have. So we'll see the model of Sting all over the place. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, to have like it... All the, door, all the door guards have to have that thing because you never know when giant spiders could attack the, the door. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It's basically, it's the Gondolin version of a K-bar. Right, right, right. <laughs> More or less. Anyway. <laughs> I like it. Okay, sorry, but anyway, this is efficiency. So, um... Uh, yeah, so love the spiders, love the that's all that's all that's all good. So, and we have Diaron uh, with his music uh, driving them mm-hmm. back, you know, sort of driving them back with his yeah. music, uh, setting that up. That's all that's all good. Um, the grinding ice stuff. This is uh, we. Um, this is just the aurora happening. The aurora uh, happening, not showing, right? So yeah, we're not showing the to do so that. It's not weird that he winds up carrying the moon. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. Exactly. So we have. Um, um, so the only reaction you're getting are people looking up at it in wonder. So we're not going to talk about the board, the aurora at all. Right. Mm, I mean, we're setting up that, like Omo explicitly says that it's to give them hope. Yeah. And so their reactions are going to tell us that. Right. That's happening. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. We may want to bring it up explicitly in the discussions that they have in episode 12, but we'll worry mm-hmm. about that later. Okay. Fine. Good. Um, uh, the, uh, Feanor's sons. So uh, um, uh, this is who's, – who's, who, who, whom are we quoting? Okay, that's, that's me. I, I did not notice that in there that way. I apologize. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, no so basically, that was just me kind of uh, 
getting getting misty eyed thinking about like the final the last really heroic moment for all the sons of Feanor together. Yes, and making that suitably epic, you know, kind of coming in and out of out of focus, um, you know, as as they're rescuing their father. Um, yes, it, you know, like just des- I wanted to catch that kind of desperate, gritty kind of uh, situation. Yes, where they're fleeing themselves into battle completely self-sacrificially. Like they're yes. going to come out of this cuts all over the place. And thinking of the, this is you know we can get some payoff from the kind of tensions among the Feanorians that we had leading up to this, right? Like I'm thinking Mithros leads the charge, right? Mithros, um, you know, who had had beef with his dad and, and who was already resistant and had stood aside at the burning of the ships, yet he sees Feanor stabbed. But, you know, they're coming up. They've got to be already charging up to help him when he's fighting with the Balrog. So they see Stumpy uh, stab Feanor in the belly and you know so we've got to get you know Mithros uh, you know and his reaction to that and him charging up to rescue his dad so um, and Amros too yeah yeah and Amros too absolutely um, like for, for a minute, that's all that matters yeah you know, all that matters saving dad I'm even imagining Amros uh, being the one to physically carry him off the battlefield maybe um, that image of Amros holding Fanor in his arms, actually, I kind of like, you know. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, they so they, they've got to come in. Now, we've still got to be cautious about this because we can't just beat off the Balrogs, and they're not just going to run, you know. Uh, so I've got to think that what happens is... Cause, on the one hand, right, Stumpy stabbed uh, 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 Fanor, and that's not what was supposed to happen, so Gothmog's mad about that. But obviously, he's now down, so now the time is to, um, um, now is the time for them to, like, swoop in, pick him up, and go away, right? So they're on the cusp of hauling Fanor's still, you know, breathing body back to Morgoth fast before he kicks it, right? Um, and that's what is interrupted by Fanor's son. So Mithros comes in and, uh, you know, and beats off Stumpy, who's uh, standing there. And, and But I, I've got to think, they're not going to, they, the Balrogs, are not going to stop pushing. They're not going to run away. They're not going to be afraid. They're not going to back off. They're going to be like, no, like, we almost had him. Like, we've got, we've got to get him now. We still have to take him. Um, so I got to think what ha- like they have to the, the sons of Fanor have to come in and push him back, push them back, the three Balrogs. But the rest, right. uh, many more of the Feanorians have to sweep in. There's yeah, a whole absolutely. army. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like basically, Fanor is the first one through, right? And because he's doing the like Aragorn on the battlefield thing, where nobody wants to even get in his face at all, right? Um. You know, like that's the that it's explicitly said that one of the main reasons why Aragorn is unhurt in the Battle of Melanor Fields is because none of the orcs, any of the orcs that see anybody that sees him wants nothing to do with him. Right. So essentially, that's what's happening there. Right. The so he's the first one through. The the sons of Fenor are essentially, you know, a minute at the most behind him. Right. Like they're a fight scene behind him. Right. The 
So if the other, if the sons of Feanor can get out there and essentially they're shielding Feanor with their own bodies, like they're like Myveros comes out and gets in Stumpy's grill, which is enough to get them to pull back a little bit, and the other the other sons of Feanor get to get to him and inter, interpose themselves between him and the Balrogs. And the rest of the army is essentially breaking through at that moment. Yeah. The and orcs are beginning to break and run. And so they, it, the Balrogs, you know, do the math and go, mm, no. Well, And they've got us... Right, I'm thinking one more step. That is, because the problem is, the Sons of Fanor have to not only be able to come in and drag Fanor away before he can get either taken or chopped up by Balrogs, but they also have to none of them die in doing that. Um, right, which is tricky. Yeah. So I'm thinking how that would have to happen again. They push them back. Then, as you say, the rest of the army is breaking in. Uh, the uh, other, you know, no name Noldor soldiers would then also sweep in around the sons of Fanor um, and interpose. The, and so they would interpose themselves between the Balrogs and the sons of Fanor, and a bunch of them could be killed, right? Because Gothmog's first impulse is going to be like, he's still, I can still see him, he's right there. You know, this um, this is going bad, like it was already going badly enough that Stumpy stabbed him. Now we're not even going to have a body to take back to him? Like, come on, like we have got, so they're going to be like, you know, hacking and slashing and trying to get to Fanor, um, and the rest of the Fanorians will push and the sons of Fanor will pull him back. Um, and then afterwards, you know, once the as the orcs then you know go around them, and it's clear that Fanor is vanished back into the camp, then Gothmog will, in great frustration, call the call the retreat at that point. I would think, but um, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, that, that's a good way to make it not look like the Balrogs just run away. As right, soon exactly. As the show up. Yeah, they're yeah. not gonna. We can't make it look like they're scared because they're not scared. Um, nor that they're totally overpowered because they're not totally overpowered. But, uh, but as you said, if we had a situation where even three Balrogs are totally surrounded by an Oldor army, they would die uh, eventually. Um, uh, even though they would take a lot of them with them. So, honestly, I, it, I, I'm not sure what the over under is on on three and a half, two and a half Balrogs. Versus the seven sons of Feanor, to be perfectly honest. Right. You know, I'm uh, I'm not sure that that's a, a given situation right. to start with. Right. Uh, right. You know? Well, six. <laughs> we killed one already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they, they out they outnumber them by <laughs> they outnumber them by twelve. 12 to 5 hands. <laughs> right, exactly. Hello. Just over 2 to 1. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay, no, that's good. Um, okay, so I'm cool with that. Last thing is the making of the sun and moon, which is good. I like how you guys handled that. Like, let's do it totally non-visually. We'll just hand the fruit and the flower to the people, and then, like, light comes, and we don't see them anymore, and then, like, the sun rises. Like, that's fine. We, You know, I, I like the let's not build a, you know, mythological chariot of the sun or anything like that. You know, like we, you know, we're not, um, we're not going to have a huge flower, you know, that we're carrying around and dropping. About this point, about yeah. what the side would be. But at the end of the day, and, and I said this a bunch of times, I said it doesn't matter 
It does not matter what size. I don't care if it's the size of a beach ball. I don't care if it's the size of a house. Right. It's not. It's not. It's not it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. It's not. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> clearly, it's, it's not. It's obviously magic. Yeah. Like that's it. Yeah. So there's this is definitely an artistic representation, and and therefore it would be up to the artist to convey the idea of sun through a fruit or a flower, not to actually construct a vessel that is believably the yeah. sun or the moon. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. Exactly. By the way, Rickle Richard suggests we, we're, we're setting up an obvious spinoff show uh, called Two and a Half Balrogs. Um, but anyway, oh, no. uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. So basically taking that, just kind of embracing that whole, this is an abstract artistic representation of a mythological thing. And we're just, you know, going to do it with light and uh, uh, and just suggest, you know, uh, we just draw the connection, right? This person mm-hmm. plus this thing, like fruit or flower, is the sun and moon, right? But we're not going to show right. like the physical transition, and because as you say, you can't do that. Um, so no, it's good. I I like that. Um, um, the um, the grief and um, hope of the making of the sun and moon, it, you know, uh, is is nice. I mean, I think, I think that that all, that all works really well. I, I don't know if you recognize the mirror image of this with the creation of the trees. Yeah. Um, because like, the, I mean, obviously this was two years ago that we talked about that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in this case, it's Yavana. Yes. Remonstrating Nienna. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, I like that. That's very good. Um, I thought that was really neat. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, no good. I I um I thought the Valinorian stuff was handled really well. Um so uh yeah, good okay, so that'll be a few odds and ends from this episode. Maybe that we'll pick up next time, but um uh but we're mostly good with it. Okay. But I'm over time, so we should we should stop now. But see look at that. We got more than halfway through, which is totally fine. So we may need another episode to finish this up, which is, I know, like, that's going to be a huge shock to everybody. Just like, it's like the death of Captain Ahab, the unexpected death of Thanor, the fact that we didn't finish all five episodes in one session here today. Uh, <laughs> like, those are all really kind of on a par. Um, uh, but uh, but that's fine. So let's talk about when that next session will be, where we will finish this up and maybe even have some time to start on some of our creative discussion uh, or the, the discussion of other people's creative work uh, and suggestions. Yeah, the wholly uncreative of an endeavor <laughs> yeah, of exactly. scripting. Exactly, right, yes. yeah, yeah, true. Uh, um, is going to be so it's, so we're going to have to have our session next week so cuz uh I'm traveling so time wise yeah so I'm traveling on the 15th <laughs> excuse me sorry I'm traveling on the 15th and then the week after that is Mythmoot so um I will be unavailable for the two middle weeks of June uh so I'm going so we're going to have to have our next session next Friday the 8th and then the following session will be back on the old schedule so it'll be 3 weeks after that on the 29th of June so um and uh uh, the casting nominations, don't forget casting nominations uh, are uh, still ongoing. Um, in the next session on June 8th, we will announce uh, the um, uh, the beginning of 
voting for um, casting, you know, when we're going to be closing nominations and beginning the voting process. So uh, continue the nomination process uh, as we move through there. Um, But uh, good. Good. All right. Um, Any other final thoughts, notes before we go? No. We kept you long enough. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody. I, uh, um, uh, this was, uh, this was as always, you know, these sort of, uh, fun, unexpected contemplations arise. Uh, I just, our consideration of timekeeping and dwarf culture was, was my favorite part of today's episode. Uh, thinking through what a, an early first age dwarf, uh, culture would be like, uh, so many fun things, the kind of thing that I just never think about when I'm just reading the text myself. So, uh, thanks guys, uh, for joining me, uh, for this. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll say thanks for listening and Godspeed.